We're going to be picking up where we left off on Tuesday, and um, we're going to try to be a, a bit ambitious tonight, but we'll see how far we can go. What I'll uh, want you to do is, is to pay attention. You may have to take some notes if you want to be able to follow me uh, for tonight. I do have some questions I do want to raise, but I'm going to do it after prayer, and hopefully everybody will be in form and position with your hearts attentive to our endeavor tonight. So you can join me, man, amen. A couple, two or three things I do want to mark that as we have endeavored upon a multitask here in our study, the book of Romans, and we have been uh, endeavoring in a multitask through the historic and legendary book of the Pilgrim's Progress. I'm hoping that you guys are doing your part in keeping up in reading. I've sent you material, so you should be able to keep up. We, um, as you know, on Tuesday, we had a blackout here. We did some recording. We did not upload it because we just didn't feel like it was worth presenting in the form that it was. We also did have another class the following day on Wednesday, and that was a Zoom class. And I am interested in knowing how many of you guys caught us on the Zoom class. Okay, in-house, only about 40%. We had almost 100 people on that Zoom class. That means I sent it out to everybody that is part of our email group. If you're part of our email group, you would have gotten that notice. If you're not part of our email group, then you wouldn't. If you want to be part of that email group, you will have to submit your information, not to me. I'm the last person you want to give anything to, okay? Uh, But you can call the office and make sure that our secretaries get you in the system because we will be having more Wednesday classes. They're great um, because we need to unpack this thing called the Pilgrim's Progress more particularly. We don't get a chance to do it. Uh, just in one hour on Tuesdays. And of course, on Fridays, we get a little bit longer time, but today I'm going to be dealing with three things. Going back over some of the fundamentals of what it means to be a pilgrim and their progress. So you need to take that literally and theologically. What does it mean to be a pilgrim on their progress? That's what we're getting ready to unpack now. I'm not going to stay on it a whole lot because we did it Tuesday and then we more fully developed it on Wednesday. So we are in, we're going to be moving more quickly into our second outline, which you have with you today. And that outline should have a title on it. The, um, I have the wrong one here. Let me see. The called and the called and the drawn. And uh, that's an extension of what we were dealing with. I'll explain that if you're not really used to theology in a systematic way here in a moment. What we're going to try to do with our time, it's 7.15 now, I'm going to try to make it to about 7.45, dealing with um, the theology and then kind of wrapping up our outline around the pilgrim, because we do have in it some questions, I'm almost sure, in here, yes, that has to do with the pilgrim's journey. I do want to ask now, just for those of you who are in-house, how many are you keeping up with me on the Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, again, we got about 50, 60 percent. Good. This is not hard to do. If you don't have the material, uh, come and see us, uh, call us, email us, or what have you. It's not hard to do. You will be blessed if you go through the Pilgrim's Progress, and especially as we unpack it from a theological standpoint and a practical standpoint. The other thing I asked the class to do 
broadly was to join me in the watching of a presentation called Leaving the World Behind, Leaving the World Behind, which was a collaboration with some Hollywood stars and our ex-president Obama, along with his wife. So Michelle and Barack actually played a significant role in it. I'm going to talk about that when we get into the second half of our study. There is no outline for that, so you're going to have to listen carefully. So I do want to ask just for numbers sake. How many guys had a chance to watch Leave the World Behind? Okay, so in the house, we had about 60%. If you didn't watch it just because you're lazy, then I'm admonishing you. Because Christians are lazy. If you didn't watch it because you're lazy, I'm admonishing you. If you didn't watch it because other things didn't allow you to, I get that. Life has a way of not letting you do what you should. But um, this presentation will serve as you're going to learn tonight to help you understand something about the mission of Hollywood and foreshadowing events and why people need to pay attention to predictive programming uh, in the world. Okay, I'm going to show you, those of you who watched it, how to put on a biblical lens when you're watching movies to see systems of theology, whether they are pro or anti, and it's important to know. So you're going to see some of that tonight in this presentation because it's relevant to us, as we'll see. So that's kind of ambitious. What I want to do now is talk about what we started on Monday, uh, on Tuesday, in terms of the journey of the pilgrim. And um, for those of you, if you're first time here, we do have the old outline from Tuesday um, you can get it in the back by that young, handsome brother back there wearing a black jacket. He's just wearing a black jacket because he's got two pistols under the jacket, just in case a fool run up in here. But don't be afraid of him. Um, uh, Giannis will give you a copy if you need one. I'm going to open up this way and just kind of walk it through. You guys have been with me before. The concept of a pilgrim is a biblical concept. It is a New Testament and Old Testament concept, okay? This is not some... Uh, sort of like secular, traditional nomenclature. A biblical concept is the idea of the pilgrim, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm uh, 119, verse 19. He says that he is a pilgrim in the earth, therefore hide not your commandments from me. This is the psalmist. And then the, the term here is stranger. I am a stranger in the earth. It means the same thing. Hide not your commandments from me. Another portion of the psalm, he says, that your songs, O God, your word, O God, is my song in the days of my pilgrimage. The New Testament language picks that. And of course, you guys would know that this is a sort of macro Hebraic expression to be a pilgrim because the Israelite people were pilgrims. They were strangers in Egypt headed to the promised land, and they had to make their journey there as God called them out. And Peter uses the same language in First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, you can uh, listen to it. And Peter's talking to Jews and Gentiles, so this one will apply to you and me. We'll talk briefly about why we are called pilgrims. Notice what it says, dearly beloved. So this is the term affection. Remember, whenever you hear the term dearly beloved, it's really an iteration of one concept. And that is you and I are considered loved of God in Christ. That's all that means. Dearly beloved, affectionate agapetos. Agapetos is a Greek term that means God's love, his agape, is upon us because we are agapetos. It's adjectival of being a beloved child of God. Beautiful term. Peter's using it. 
He says, and I beseech you, I urge you. This is a, uh, an imperative, but in a kind of exhortational way. As strangers and pilgrims, you guys see that? Now, what I said on Tuesday, I'm just going to say it now and keep moving. There is a significant difference between the term stranger and pilgrim. I won't go into Greek grammar because I don't want to have you distracted. But the term being a stranger means that you are in a citizenry or in a town or in a society for which that is not your native home. The idea of being a stranger there is that you may live there, you may work there, you may raise a family there, but you don't have authentic citizenship. You are a stranger. That makes sense, right? Now, when you are a pilgrim, that's slightly different because as a pilgrim, you're letting everybody know, though you are abiding in a city, in a country, among a people, you are not there for long. You are only there temporarily and you are just passing through. That distinction needs to be made clear, okay? It's one thing to be a stranger. It's another thing to be a sojourner or a pilgrim. And the Bible is clear that you and I are making our pilgrimage through this world to the world to come. That concept needs to be understood, too, because when we are dealing with what it means to be in the world, but what? Not of it. We're talking about holding a tension between a status of living here, but always having our eye fixed on the world to come. Without that view, you're in danger of collapsing into your identity being rooted in this world. So what Paul said in, first, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, is the, are these words as it comes to my head. Our citizenship is in heaven. The believer's citizenship is in heaven. Is that what the text says? I'm clear right now. The coffee's working. Listen, notice what it says. Okay, so this is verse 20, uh, verse 21, um, verse 20. Go back to verse 20 because I think he's finishing now. Here it is. For our conversation, see that uh, term conversation? That means citizenship. It's the literally it's the Greek term politikos from which we get the term politics. Conversation is not what we're saying. It's our lifestyle, but it's a lifestyle rooted in our Uh, constitutional rights because we're part of the kingdom of God. Our politics is where? In heaven. That actually gives you the key as to the home of the believer when he leaves this life. Our politics is in heaven. Our constitution is in heaven. Our political construct is in heaven. Our policies are from, from heaven. Down here on this earth, we are visiting And of course, you and I are citizens of this physical dimension, too. We have rights constitutionally here in America if you are a citizen. But our ultimate conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for uh, uh, our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the same idea that um, we get with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Pilgrim's Progress. The next word that comes into view, Pilgrim's Progress, is the term progression. Progress. To progress means that you are not stationary, you are not static, you are moving, you are transient, you are going from point A to point B or from a starting point to a finishing point. And this term, Pilgrim's Progress, really encompasses the whole journey of the pilgrim, does it not? And for those who have already enjoyed Pilgrim's Progress, you know the end destiny is the celestial city. That's glory. 
And that's where every believer is promised and every believer is headed and for which we are now going to really dive into some categories around it. Now, when we use the term pilgrim progress, as I stated on Tuesday, that is a, an assumption that the pilgrim is on his journey. But what the believer must know if the believer recognizes they are a pilgrim is that your salvation didn't start with your journey. It started before your journey. So we want to understand what it means to be a pilgrim compelled to go. A pilgrim compelled to go. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 12, 32. This is where we're going to start. And I want I want to parse it quickly um, as you see it, because it will be explicitly clear when it's expressed. This is John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, this is Jesus speaking in the first person. And I. If I be lifted up from the earth, do you guys see that construction? And I, if I be lifted up, and that actually was a statement that would be fulfilled just about four days later. Now, the idea of being lifted up from the earth is the idea of his crucifixion and his resurrection. Okay, if I be lifted up from the earth, if I be lifted up from the earth, which would be one event, there would be a subsequent event that followed. What would be that event? I will draw all men unto me. I will draw all men unto me. So what we have in these two clauses is one is the premise or the ground for the second. If men are going to be drawn to Christ, this is what we're about to talk about. Because the pilgrim's progress, as your first outline puts it, is the sinner being drawn to come to Christ. Your first outline is the sinner convinced to come to Christ. Your second one is the idea that we're getting ready to develop now, the idea of being called and therefore what? Drawn. The sinner convinced to come to Christ. Any and every one of you in this room and those of you who are watching, you do know that when God began to address you in the matters of salvation and redemption, the imperative was to come to Christ, to trust Christ as your savior, to believe on the Lord Jesus. Now, what we what we teach here at Grace, and this is not new, this is fundamental theology going all the way back to the apostolic doctrine, is that the moment that you became aware of your need to come to Christ was not the moment that your salvation started, not salvation proper. And so it's important to know that men and women that are coming to Christ are being drawn to Christ because of a requisite work that was accomplished. That's the first clause back in our verse that you need to keep in mind. How is it that men are drawn to Christ? This is going back to our text, sweetheart. John chapter 12, verse 32. How is it that men are being drawn to Christ? Why is it that there was a day when my mind and my heart was gripped by a need to get right with God? The reason why is that there was a radical event that had taken place way before your time that necessitated you then being called and drawn to him. And that was the death of Christ on the cross. Did that make some sense? I'll just drill down just a little bit, but I want you to see it. If I be lifted up from the earth, ipso facto, the outcome will be men and women will be drawn unto me from everywhere. Ipso facto. And therefore, by logic, if we use a syllogism here, if Christ be lifted up, men will be drawn 
I'm drawn, therefore Christ is what? That's called a syllogistic principle. If I'm being drawn and men are being drawn because Jesus said he is lifted up, then I can know that if I'm being drawn, it was because he was first what? Lifted up. This is what we call redemption applied. I want you to capture that term in your thought or write it down. Redemption applied. Now, it's important for you to understand it from this standpoint, too, because otherwise you will misrepresent your own salvation. Redemption applied is the work of Christ justifying us. It's called the doctrine of justification. Redemption applied. It's called the work of justification. Justification is Christ dying on the behalf of our sins and meriting for us by his death a righteousness that could be imputed to us as if it was ours. And so our sin, which condemned us, no longer stands in the way of a relationship between us and God because there was a rate of exchange. My sins were placed on him. His righteousness was placed on me. Now God can declare me forensically righteous and legally clear of any infractions against his law. Does that make some sense, you guys? Good. I'm just drilling this down for new people because a lot of times people don't really have a thorough understanding of the doctrine of justification. Here's the way I want to put it. When it comes to your justification, it was something God did for you for which you had nothing to do. This is extremely important, and I'm going to explain that more fully. But do know this, that if you and I are going to be saved, it's going to be because of a redemption accomplished. Wrong word. Somebody probably saw that. Redemption accomplished, not applied. Redemption accomplished. That means by the time the gospel comes to you, it's already accomplished. Does that make some sense? When the message of redemption comes to you, Christ has died for your sins. He was buried and then what? Risen again. He's seated at the right hand of God. That's called redemption accomplished. That's something that was already done for you. You didn't assist in that. That was done for you. It wasn't done by you. It wasn't done with you. It was done for you. That means it's an outside of you work, which also means it is a total grace factor on a level of relationship. Now, grace is the term that means God did it and you had nothing to do with it. It's important to know that. So if you and I are saved by what? Grace. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God. Then what we say is salvation can never be the consequence of me doing anything for it. Does that make sense? It's important to know that because people will mess that up. And here is the fundamental cudgel around what I want to say to move on. It's important to know that the work of redemption was done before you said yes to it. Because otherwise, logically, it would make you a co-redeemer in your own salvation if God is waiting for you to do something before his work of redemption could actually have benefit in your life. Does that make some sense? Right. When the gospel comes to you, it is finished. It's already a done deal because the transaction is not between you and God. It's between your heavenly father and your mediator, Jesus the Christ. 
So when the good news actually comes, what makes it good is it's done. It's not waiting for you to do anything in order to make it work. Am I making some sense? All right. And then the caveat of faith, we'll talk about that on the journey with Pilgrim in a minute. So there are two categories. Redemption accomplished has to do with our justification. That's one whole theological system, the doctrine of justification, something accomplished for us on the outside of us. But justification necessarily leads to what? Sanctification. There are three major doctrines. I'll drill down into that as we deal with with Pilgrim tonight. Three major doctrines. Justification is what God does for you. Sanctification is what God does for you as well, but its targeted objective is what God does in you. Sanctification must become an experiential event. And it's important to know that. This is what we'll drill down into. Not justification. You don't have to experience justification. In fact, you can't because the time sequence factors around what Jesus did for you forbid you to be a partaker of it at the principal and personal level. So it's outside of you. It's before you. In many cases, it's thousands of years before you. You didn't even have a being when God justified you freely by his grace. So therefore, it's not a feeling oriented thing. It's not something we affirm because, you know, one day I'm not justified and the next day I am justified. No, if Christ was your savior at any time, you were always justified in him when he accomplished your eternal redemption. Does that follow? And so you could actually be under, you can actually understand this in terms of the sequence of salvation. When I was born, I was born a sinner. As I lived my sinful life, as I engaged in the ignorance of my rebellion and disobedience before God, I was a wiling out sinner, unregenerate and lost in my rebellion. But I was still justified in the person of my Christ, who was my vouchsafe until the gospel came in power and told me he died for my sins. Did that come home, ladies and gentlemen? Right. Now, you need to hold them in category because people can mess that concept up, too. Like they can say, well, do you mean I was always saved? No, that's not what we mean. That's why we have to make categories very clear. So there is a there is a positional salvation. Then there is a personal salvation and then there's a permanent salvation. If you mean that the salvation that Christ accomplished for us benefits you in the sense that he is my savior, hence salvation, then yes, the savior has done that not only in Calvary 2000 years ago, but from the foundation of the world did he die as the lamb that was slain so that everybody walking the earth, whoever believes on Jesus, have the same benefits of the eternal lamb of God taking on our sacrifice. This is the idea of positional Uh, justification that comes to reality when you and I experience the grace of of God in the gospel, which brings us to the idea of sanctification. When sanctification occurs, sanctification also is a positional thing. I don't want to be here along with it, but this has to do this little term that we use often called in Christ. In Christ, the preposition in and then the noun Christ is the idea that God placed you in Christ. That is a positional concept. Does that make sense? It's the same idea as a baby being in the womb of her mother. 
the believer was in the womb of God's mind in Christ from eternity. And that's called positional sanctification because God had set you apart in Jesus before you had a being. Now, everybody wasn't set apart in Jesus. Only certain people were set apart in Jesus. This is First Timothy, Timothy chapter one, verse nine. I want you to see it in your Bible briefly so that we can move on. It's important to know the redemption accomplished factors of justification positionally. We can literally say that I was set apart in Christ before the world began, but only positionally because practically I didn't actually have a being, did I? Right. So we're dealing with categories that need to be kept in mind with God. He sees the end from the beginning, does he not? He's omniscient. You and I don't operate that way. We operate linearly and we operate within the strictures of reality predicated upon time. There was a time when I didn't have a being. Then there was a time when I did have a being in the mind of God. I've always had a being, but he also knows that there was a time when I would come into the world, just like there was a time when Jesus came into the world. Right. But we learned also that Jesus existed before he came into this world. Well, you and I existed in the mind of God before we came into this world. And when God chose to place you in Christ, as we're about to see, he did that for you before you had a being. Listen to what this says. This is going, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Um, the, these uh, numbers will come up really quick. Listen to the language. God who hath what? Saved us. And then he what? Called us with a holy calling. This is the idea of the called and the drawn. Notice the sequence of events. He first saved us and now he's doing what? Calling us. He's not calling us and then saving us. He saved us and now he's calling us to that salvation. But notice what he says, called us with a holy calling. Now that those first two clauses can really describe Pilgrim's journey. It's a calling and it's holy. Notice what he goes on to say, not according to our what? Not according to our work. So in other words, when God called you, he didn't call you to join him in accomplishing your salvation. Otherwise, that would be works. He's calling you to a grace oriented relationship. That means he already did the work for you. You guys see that, right? Notice the next line. But according to his own purpose and what? Now, God called you not according to your works. That means when he called you, he didn't say, I need you to help finish my salvation. When he calls you, he's calling you to a grace, which is a finished product, a package accomplished of which the only thing you and I need to do with that grace package accomplished is receive it. That makes some sense, right? Because it's important to know. So he says, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us where? That's your prepositional noun correlative that calls for the idea of positional salvation. Y'all caught that? Notice what it says. Notice the event. God who saved us and then he called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us. So salvation is a what? A gift. You never earn it. Now, notice what he's about to do with the language. He's about to place the event in Christ in eternity. Did you catch that? He's about to place the event in Jesus in eternity. Did that follow? Can y'all see that? 
Now, if it's true that the event of God saving us was in Christ and he placed us in Christ before the world began, you and I are way on the outside of having done anything for this salvation. Does that make some sense? And it's important for us to get it because the difference between a gospel that will send you to hell and a gospel that will save you is the difference between a salvation by work and a salvation by grace. It's important for you to know if the gospel that's being taught to you says it's your work plus Christ's work, then we already know that it won't work. You, you, sh- you must know that it's not according to your works. And so grace is always the idea that by the time God comes with the proposition, the work is already accomplished. And this here really puts us out of the scope of it. This promise was given us in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means when the father had a conversation with the son about what he would do for you, the promise that he gave Jesus was really the promise that he gave you. But he gave it to you in Jesus before the world began. Is that good? It's important for you to know. And this is why 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 would tell us all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So what God did for us, rebel sinners, is make sure that the promises were secure because the conversation he had was with Jesus and not with me. That way I wouldn't mess it up because if God said, Jesse, I need you to do something, it would always be under the liability of getting messed up. By the time it comes to me, it's secure because Jesus has accomplished it for us. The only thing that we need now after the accomplishment of it is what we call the application. Does that make some sense? The application and the application of it is the idea that at a point in time, you and I hear the gospel and the gospel begins to bring us into an overwhelming, compelling interest to find out what this salvation is all about. That's called the gospel applied. That's called being drawn by God. Some of us in this room have been drawn by God for decades. Have we not? Raise your hand if that's the case. It's important for you to know. John chapter 6, 44. Let me get at it so we can keep going because I want to really get into the pilgrim. John 6, 44. Here's what Jesus explains about the drawing. So you can know this. Jesus says, no man can come to me. Now, coming to Christ is the issue, is it not? Right. But no man can come to me except the father which has sent Jesus do what? So now Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will do what? Right. That's his part of the work. But the other part of the work is the father. So our being drawn to God is a collaborative of two persons so far. The father drawing us here. Jesus joined us in John chapter 12, 31. Do you agree with that? But what is the essential mechanism by which he draws us? The spirit of the living God. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, after that he was risen, all power and authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go ye into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. So the preaching of the gospel is a work of the spirit of God that sends the gospel out and gets a hold of people and begins to wrestle with them to bring them to God. That makes sense, right? That's the whole book of Acts. Notice what it says. No one can come to me except the father which had sent me draw him and I will do what? Raise him up at the last day. What day is that called? The day of resurrection. 
That's called the day of resurrection. That's the final day wherein we actually move from a state of justification into a state of sanctification, which culminates into a state of what? Every believer is waiting for glory, are we not? And that's the biblical doctrine. And I've said this about these three. I said it in our Wednesday class. This is called a trifecta. Justification necessarily leads to what? And sanctification necessarily leads to what? Right. So just to wrap up again for your mind, these categories under sanctification. Sanctification is what God uh, positionally did for us in Christ, as 2 Timothy 1.9 says. But then sanctification is what God also does to us personally. Because the personal sanctification experience is being drawn. When you and I are drawn, that is an experience. Something's happening. If anything is happening in your mind, it's happening in your emotions, it's happening in your heart. But this is where we're going to have the lengthy conversation about what it means to be drawn, because what it means to be drawn is not the same as what it means to be born again simultaneously. And this is something you and I must know. Okay, when you and I are drawn, we're drawn unto salvation. That means there's a work that God is doing before you and I are converted that often is a long, arduous task determined by God to prepare your heart for a change in a moment of time that he sees fit that constitutes a real conversion of your soul. I mean, we could be here for a moment, but some of you are honest enough to know that God dealt with you even when you were a child, but you were not converted yet. You were just simply being dealt with. Are you guys hearing me? This is important because you won't understand the pilgrim's progress if you don't understand that drawing and calling is a work of the spirit that brings you to a place where when God has done working in your life, he now brings you to that climactic moment that we would call punctiliarly a conversion experience where the soul comes into a conscious awareness that your sins are forgiven and that there is no more condemnation and that you as a child of God are walking in a liberty that you did not have before that punctilier event. Am I making some sense? And this is why Jesus said it in John chapter three. I'm going to start at verse three, John three, three, go through five because Nicodemus didn't understand what I'm saying. Okay. So when we talk about conversion, because I want to just move on for time's sake, please understand conversion is a mystery. And do not fall prey to what we would call carnal mechanistic devices that would argue that somehow you can know when you're converted. No, all you can know is the evidence that the conversion has occurred. Jesus is getting ready to use the metaphor of a baby in the womb, is he not? Now, we know that there is a punctiliar event that occurred when the sperm hits the ovum and there is a life that takes place. Do we not? Even as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, so are the ways of the bones in the womb of a woman when a child is conceived. It's called a mystery. Y'all got that, right? Stay with me. Now, God knows the moment, but you don't. No more than you knew the moment when you were actually conceived in the womb of your mother and father. 
Number one, with your mother, by your father. Y'all got that? Now, I want you to capture this because it takes humility to understand the gospel properly. A false gospel would say you have something to do mechanistically with your conversion. And therefore, you can claim, I know the hour I was saved. No, you don't. It's impossible. You can only know the hour you enjoy maybe an epiphany of God's grace and maybe the freedom that came into your soul when that message finally liberated you with some understanding that Christ was your savior. But you could have been well born again, well much earlier than that. Am I making some sense? All right. So now this is important for you to know, however, Jesus answered and said, verily, verily, I said unto you, except the man be what? He can't see the kingdom of God. And this is one of what we're called evidential elements. How do I know I'm born again? Because I can see the kingdom of God. And this is what Bunyan is going to teach us in Christian, because Christian labors, pilgrim labors to find the wicked gate. And the wicked gate is the only way to secure your experience with the cross work of Christ so that the liberty of the burden on your back called sin can be relieved. Am I making some sense? Right. Everyone that's saved has to go through the straight gate. Now, getting to the straight gate becomes the arduous journey. And we'll be, we're going to be talking through that a little bit. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See here literally means comprehend, understand. And it's understanding spiritual things because the kingdom of God comes without physical empirical observation. Would you agree with that? This is Luke's gospel, chapter 17, around 20. The kingdom of God does not come with eyesight. Like you don't necessarily know that you are in the kingdom of God because you're sitting in a room numerically with 50 people. You don't know that. You might suspect that. But it could very well be possible all 50 people in the room are imposters when it comes to Christianity. What if you're in a cult? What if you're in a false church? What if you're in a church where the gospel's not preached and Christ is not exalted? What if you're in a church where they got the wrong Jesus and the wrong spirit and the wrong gospel? It means you are not in the kingdom of God. Am I making some sense? Right. So I'm laying these down because this would definitely be the area of theology that I would want you never to be skating on the ice of equivocation and ignorance on. Okay, this like. You, you guys, if you're keeping up with me with Pilgrim, you understand that Pil- Pilgrim is having a heck of a time getting to that straight gate, isn't he? And John Bunyan understands that millions and millions and millions of people as goodwill told Pilgrim and as evangelists told Pilgrim, all kinds of people fall to the left and fall to the right and sink into the abyss And never make it to the straight gate. But isn't that what Jesus said? Many are called, but what? Few are chosen. So the Christian ought never to play games with the issue of what does it mean to be saved? And I would simply say, as we're working it through, now that I I can tell God has our attention, you want to be able to explain what Scripture says about the salvation experience And if you can't, that is an assignment for you this year. Don't tell people you know you're saved when you can't even explain what it is. This is where God had to rebuke Nicodemus because Nicodemus is a theologian and he doesn't get this. He's somebody teaching the Torah. 
the Tanakh, and he doesn't understand what it means to be born again. How humbling. But can I tell you what's happening with Nicodemus right now? He's being what? Is he being drawn? And he's never going to stop until he culminates in the reality of who Jesus is for him. Because the Holy Spirit is drawing him, is he not? Right. This is what happens to you and me. Verse four. One more verse. Nicodemus said, unto him, how can a man be born again when he's old? That means Nicodemus didn't understand salvation. Can he enter, into his, enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's a stupid question. He violated categories. Did he not? And that's what you and I will do if we're not serious about understanding how to explain the gospel. Christ wasn't talking about going back into his mother's womb of physical time. He was talking about a spiritual birth. The term being born again has three categories, being born anew, being born a second time and being born from above. That's just to help some of y'all. When you're born again, you're born anew. You're not born a second time the same way. That's a redundancy that makes no sense. When you're born again, you're born anew. You're born a different way. A new thing is going on. Then thirdly, you're born from above. That means God did that. You're a child of God. Heaven actually changed your nature. I'm making some sense, right? Good. So this is what I meant by a personal sanctification experience. That's what Jesus says must occur. And these are the things we want to affirm as children of God, whether or not we actually know that not only this time is Christ in us, but are we. um, I'm sorry that, that we are in Christ, but rather that whether or not Christ is in us. This is a reversal of that process. To be in Christ is what God did for you, outside of you, positionally. For Christ to be in you is what God does when he places Jesus in you by the Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel. Colossians 1.27, you'll see it in a second. So what does it mean to be saved? It means that Jesus reigns on your heart as sovereign Lord in a very personal and vital way by which you are no longer alone. When a person is actually converted, it's not just now that you know about Jesus. It's just that it's that Christ is now resident in your heart, ruling over you, negotiating your journey now. And he's not doing it in absolute sovereignty on a monogenic level. He's negotiating with you, teaching you how to submit to him. That's Philippians 2.12. It is God working in you the will and to do of his good pleasure. Y'all got that, right? But that also becomes an evidence that I'm born again, because here's how you and I might know it. When I'm not born again, I'm really running my life. When I'm not born again, I'm the one making decisions and Jesus is just a sidekick. I might holler at him. I might not. That's when I'm not born again. Please listen to me. See, but when you are born again, Jesus is no longer outside of you as a proposition that you admire. Christ is in you as a sovereign Lord dictating outcomes. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Am I making some sense? I'm going to drill that home. It's apparent that I need to got so many new people in the house to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the what? Christ in you, the what? Now, when a man or woman is truly born again, everything that frames their life, frames their emotional makeup, frames their disposition, frames their 
a hierarchy of choices frames their worldview is the glory of God. The hope of glory drives the Christian. Did that make some sense? Now, what that looks like is what you and I are going to see as Christian makes his way through the straight gate up the hill and the burden is let off of his back. That's in stage three of your outlines uh, online. And as you guys know, he continues his journey, doesn't he? And no one can say that his journey then becomes easy like a downhill slide because that's not the Christian life. That's one of the reasons you and I are going to work through the characters that catch up with him that try to distract him. Because many of those nefarious characters would love you to believe that if God really loves you, he should make your life easy. That makes some sense, right? All right. So. Um, glorification is the end game, but here's what you and I might know. And I've shared this with our group before. When you and I come under personal sanctification experience of the spirit of God, sanctification is glorification begun. I want this to come home for those of you who are new. When you are sanctified, when the spirit of Christ is in you, you already have the seeds of glory operating in your life. Now, I'm not saying this as a panacea to make you feel good. It really is true. Because when a person is sanctified in the personal sanctification sense, they have privileges of comprehension and relationship with God at a dimensional level that the unconverted does not have. You're talking about seeing the kingdom of God. When you're born again, your eyes are opened. This is what we learned in our outline under the uh, first outline. If you go to it quickly, because I'm doing some explaining that I think is important, but I would certainly want you to be able to understand in our first outline under the sinner is convinced to come to Christ. Look with me under category number two, point number two. The gospel apply calls and does what? That's our main title. It, it, it calls and draws, right? So point A, the sinner is distinguished. Secondly, they are also spiritually what? And then finally, they are what? Spiritually enlightened. So to put a nutshell on that, the Pilgrim's Progress demonstrates that. Because in his initial drawing, there are people that go with him. But by the time he gets to the wicked gate, there's no one with him. Y'all keep, y'all keep it up with me? This is really important for you to get. This is why John Bunyan in prison writing the Pilgrim's Progress had all the time and all the guidance of the spirit of God to help you and I understand that you don't get saved with somebody else. There ain't no group salvation. This is not Kaiser. This is not Summit. Okay, this is not Blue Shield. Okay, every one of us has to go through Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Pull that up for me. Every one of us has to go through Matthew 7, verse 13. Now, you can have partners that roll with you and y'all have a cool time and all that. And y'all might even both have walked up to the altar and, and prayed the sinner's prayer. Promise you, you'd have to go through that door by yourself. Am I making some sense? Promise you. Enter ye in at the what gate? That's right. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go therein. When we're dealing with worldly wise men, that's our study we're going to take up next week. When we're dealing with worldly wise men, I'm going to show you that worldly wise men tried to tell Christian, tried to tell pilgrim the church he needed to go to was the broad road church. 
And we're going to unpack that because there are things he said that are worth our enlightenment and insight for now. But look at verse 14. This is what Jesus said in verse 14. Because straight is the gate. You guys see that? Straight is the gate and what? Narrow is the way. So the analogy is that the gate, and it's called the wicked gate in the progress. The gate is strictured. It has a constriction of size and width and height so that the person going into that gate cannot bring anyone with him. He just gets in by his own dimensions of torso. Did that come home? The other thing is that that wicked gate does not allow him to bring luggage. He has to leave luggage behind him so that when he goes into that gate, he goes into that gate as a naked, hellbound sinner in hope of the glory of God. That's why everything that's preceding that narrow gate is instruction for you and me. Am I making some sense? Right. And this is why a lot of people don't go through that narrow gate because they never get to the place where they are totally helpless. Most people come to church, got plan B, C, and D. See, they're not broken yet. They're not broken. Well, if the church thing is cool, if it works out, if it can increase my dignity, increase my plan, if I can get some business. Out. You know, sinners are notorious. Are you, are, are you aware that your neighbor is notorious? And not making that mutual. So when the other person looking at you, they know you notorious. Sinners are notorious. This is why church is a scandal. Because we don't keep the gate straight. We want everybody to come in. So we'll work that through. But please understand this, that narrow interest, entrance into the kingdom is why you and I struggle before we experience relief. I'm making some sense now, right? Okay, very good. So now what I want you to do, I'm going to leave that there because I want to, I got an impulse to want to go to our second outline and begin to deal with some deconstruction. And again, just, just going to your other outline called and drawn, I want to begin to kind of talk through some things for the record. And then you guys can enjoy, you can join me in Q&A when we get to it. We're going to try to take about 15, 20 minutes at the most, deal with this. And I'm going to actually only deal with part of leave the world behind. I will pick it up on my Monday show and we will do it on Tuesday if I have to, because there are a number of things about it that I think are important to talk about. We might be able to get to it. But under uh, called and drawn, I want to actually use now as a passage to raise the questions that's in your outline concerning Pilgrim. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, Hebrews chapter 11 Verse six. Notice what Hebrews eleven six says. But without what? It's impossible to do what? That's right. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that lazily seek him. That verse underscores the commitment that showed up in Pilgrim's life, didn't it? Is that the verse? Because that dude was serious, wasn't he? Was he serious? Now he really believed him some God, didn't he? And he believed that if you diligently seek God, you'll find him. Isn't that what God said in Jeremiah 29, 13? If you seek me, you'll find me when you seek me with everything that's in you. I promise you. And, 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 and Pilgrim was serious about it, wasn't he? 
He is serious about it, just enough to look around. Obstinate is gone. Pliable is gone. Wife is gone. Children is gone. Neighbors are gone. And nobody on that road but Pilgrim. He was serious about his salvation, wasn't he? All right, so let's go to work a little bit. Let's go to work here in our outline under um, the idea of uh, the sinner being drawn. God calls and God draws. Here's the question that I'm raising. I want us to get into now. It's in your outline. The pilgrim's departure from his house and pursuit of Christ is being called what? Called and drawn. I'm doing a reiteration there. You got to be thinking. What does it mean for pilgrim to depart from his house in pursuit of Christ? It means he's being called and what? As our text says, very good. It means he's being called. It means he's being drawn. We have the verses already and we can move on now to the sub questions in there. What was Pilgrim's soul condition? What was the fundamental thing we know that Pilgrim was struggling with? Now, you know, your answers are in the verse that is connected to it. Matthew eleven twenty eight. What was the one thing that Pilgrim described his condition as? burdened. Right? Come unto me, are you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Is that a good Bible verse? It's a, it's a precise and accurate verse of the overture of Christ commanding that the sinner comes because the sinner is being drawn. Now, the additional component, the additional uh, uh, driving mechanism is that the sinner is coming because a call has been made, but it's also because he has a burden. That makes sense. Right. It's really important. Really, really important. The big part of the narrative of Pilgrim's progress is that Pilgrim becomes burdened with his condition. That becomes one of the prerequisites to coming to Christ. If you're not burdened with your condition, you're not coming. Let's, let's continue. I'll, I'll expand on this uh, at length in, in our outline. Pilgrim's sole condition is that he was, he was burdened. So point B, what was his initial attire called? What was his initial attire called? Say it out loud. Rags. Raggedy rags. Rags. Now, again, we're dealing with what is called a an allegory. So when Pilgrim leaves home, Pilgrim is not wearing a suit. When Pilgrim leaves home, he's leaving home in an accurate attire that describes his condition spiritually. So when he leaves home in rags, it is indicating that he is operating out of spiritual poverty. Did that make some sense? Right. Again, this is where church is one of the most diabolical lying systems on the planet, because in some churches you can't even go to them unless you got five hundred dollars and got to have a spanking suit on and some shiny shoes. Am I making some sense? And you can't come to Jesus in their church unless you're willing to give up one hundred dollars. What if you broke? You can't even come to Jesus in their church. So the gospel the gospel must strip you of the pride of your dignity and assumption that somehow you appeal to God. 
This is why the Bible says Christ came into the world to save sinners. And you and I should know that the allegory of his rags is an indication of the condition of his soul, that he is spiritually impoverished, that he has no wealth or resources to give to God. So as he is being drawn to God, he's not coming to God with a plan that he would make payments for his salvation. That makes sense, right? That's why the Bible says a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. All right, let's go on. Let's go on. And, and you, you guys will be able to get some Q&A in here in a moment. Subpoint C in our outline. What was his position towards his home? What was his position towards his home? Was he constantly looking at his wife and looking at his children and bemoaning and toiling? That was an initial struggle, was it not? And again, when we deal with worldly wise men, I'm going to show you how worldly wise men told him, we got a church for you and the family. Did y'all hear that? We got a church for you and the family. All y'all can be saved. But it becomes one of these things where there is a denial of the explicit teaching of Jesus in Matthew 10, that in order to be Christ's disciple, you must be willing to forsake your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your parents for my sake. Are you not worthy to be called my disciple? Y'all got that, right? So now this is really an interesting uh, optic that I want to put out before you because it does sit on a spherical uh, tension in our world. Sure, we would love for all of our family members to be saved. There's no guarantee that that will happen. Um, It does happen from time to time, but it is a consequence of a lot of prerequisite work. And what I mean by that is it's the consequence of God actually making sure that the head of the household is operating right and the wife of the household is operating right. And the kids are being brought up under a faithful gospel situation so that they have all of the potential pillars that would bring about a salvation of the family. But where the initial dealing with the hellbound sinner is that his whole household is lost and rebellious and in disobedience. You cannot tell that sinner that he can be guaranteed that his family is coming into the kingdom. Am I making some sense? Right. And so. Often for the Christian, the early days of his or her walk is painfully agonizing because the people you care about most will not and cannot come with you. See, it's very important for us to get that. Um, Notice what it says in subpoint D. Um, so back in sub point C, when I raised the question, what was his position towards his home? If you go back to the uh, allegory, you'll find him looking away from home because he sees the city of destruction. And he notices that the city of destruction is where he lives. And his job now is to flee. He's already told his family, we're getting ready to get into that with Pliable and and, and, and Austin. Hey, this city is going to be destroyed. We got to leave. That's why I wanted to deal with leave the world behind because the analogy is there, is it not? All right. So Pilgrim is demonstrating that he's conscious that the world is under judgment, that 
mankind are sinners. Isn't that what your Bible says? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? You don't have a cousin that was born from the womb saved. You don't have a relative that was holy from conception. Only Jesus was holy from conception. Everybody else need to be born again. Okay, so let's uh, let's work through a little bit more uh, with this. What was what was their attitude attitude towards Pilgrim? How did they view Pilgrim? Now, your Bible would give you some clues, but I'm going to say it for time's sake this way. They were incredulous. They did not believe him. They viewed him as foolish. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 24 says that the gospel is foolishness to them that are perishing. Foolishness, moronic. Does that make some sense? Right. And you guys know that's the case. We, we, we know that. Every one of us has been uh, maligned as a Christian uh, with our loved ones when they discover that God was drawing us for real. Like, you know, I can tell you some stories. My loved ones were just as mad at me as could be when I told them, you must change. I had a cousin, big old football guy, burly cousin. You know, he was like a big brother to me. He would tell me, you know, to do whatever he said do when I was younger. I did, because, you know, that's what you do when big bro is, you know, has the authority of me. But when God saved me at 18 years old, he said, boy, what are you doing? You're changing. That's what he said to me. What are, he was mad. What are you doing? You are changing. I says, you must change cause you must change. And then I went into how we grew up doing dr- drugs and crime and all that. You know, I was in that foolishness, foolishness deep when God saved me, deep when God saved me, deep when God saved me. And when he converted me, I came out running. Remember how Pilgrim, when he finally had to leave the family, where was his hands? You have to escape from your life a lot of times from those that are closest to you in your family. Am I making some sense? Right. It's important to know because really when God is dealing with you, he's dealing with you. Second person singular. Not me, not them, you. He's dealing with you. And then you come to discover that nobody else is interested. Right. Then you got a thousand arguments. We can get into them. Let me see if we can keep moving. Okay, good. Notice what was their attitude towards him? Foolishness. They were angry. So many things you guys already know. So point B, what was the meaning of this condition? What was the uh, meaning of this condition? That that is not a good construct. I, I really would say what was the method that brought this condition about? What was the cause of this condition? And this is really critically important. Someone should know what was the one thing early on that was obvious about why Christian was put in this pilgrim was put in this condition where he was burdened. The Bible. You must know this. The one thing that was inferred from the beginning was that he read that book. You guys remember that? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide asunder soul and spirit. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You begin to read the Bible and then the Bible begins to read you. And once it reads you, you are in trouble because the third person is going to do what we learned last Tuesday. He's going to convince you that you're a sinner. 
Am I making some sense, ladies and gentlemen? Right. So we should have never opened that book. Because I'm telling you, once I opened that book, I did not close that book as a 17 year old. Every time I had, I opened that book again. I was reading that book on the on the AC bus transit. I was reading that book at work. I worked for the uh, school district as a janitor. I would actually take longer breaks than I should have. I was, you know, I'm still a, you know, I'm still a green behind the ears. So I'm, I'm taking hour breaks because I'm reading that book. Anybody know what I'm talking about? See, that book has me. Right. And I couldn't wait to recover energy to read more. And that's what's going on with Pilgrim. And if you guys know, he tried to offer the book to everybody. and Nobody wanted. This is the religious age you and I live in, too. Nobody wants this book. And, and you're going to be a, a struggling Christian if you take this book seriously. And what I mean is in relationships with people. You want people to not like you? Take that book serious. I'm talking about folks that call themselves saved. I'm talking folks call themselves saved. You take that book too serious. I heard it all my life. It's a lie. I have never taken the Bible serious enough. Did you hear what I just stated? I have never taken the Bible serious enough. They lied to me. That book will make you go crazy. I was crazy before the book. God saves crazy people and gives them good sense. Next sub points, if, if we have them there. Is that it to our walk on that? Is, is that no? Is that? Turn the page. Yeah, page two. Yeah, page, yeah, point number two. Here it is. The pilgrim. Oh, okay, so that's it. Oh, that's it on there. Okay, on our outline, the word of God and the evangelist. Okay, we have that. I guess they don't have that there, do they? No. I'm on point number two. Can we move? No, no, I did want to go to. You guys can't. Okay, we can here. Because I, I, I want to I wanna walk this through. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to walk it through so that we can get into our next phase. And this is where I started with Pilgrim. And this is where it's really important. If you're going to be talking to people that may be deal, God may be dealing with. Don't, don't get people caught up in your wisdom. Hurry up and overcome the assumption that you have enough wisdom to guide people. Because, because that'll make you a pseudo savior. And here's another reality. There is no power in your wisdom. We're gonna, I'm, I'll show you that when we get to the, to the slough of despond here in a moment. Because that's where all, all three of them ended up in the slough. And, and there's a reason for that. Okay, and I'm going to show you that here in a moment. But here's what I want to say to you. Your job as a Christian is not to get in the way of the word of God and get the people and say, now just listen to me, listen to me. You have no power. The only power you have is to actually assist people in going to hell. You can help them go the wrong way. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. So what I'm what I'm very much getting at is that you're, you should have a level of confidence in Scripture that you should want to recommend the word of God to them as the solution to their problems. So, so what should I do? I'm struggling. I think God is dealing with me. I don't know what. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Now, 
what you can wait on when you encourage them to do that is to whether they will do it or not. Because if they don't read their Bible, you can know there's a great possibility they're not being called. Did you hear what I just stated? Without a doubt, because, I mean, we, we're going to talk about the broad road next week with Worldly Wise Man. And in Worldly Wise Man's counsel, the Bible, the last thing he wants you to be dealing with. So you got a lot of church folk that swear they know the Lord and can't tell you where John 3.16 is. Or even Genesis 1 1. Where's Genesis 1 1 at? It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's a lot of Christians for you. So, so listen to what it says the Word of God in Evangelist, second point. The emphasis that I wanted to draw out here was um, uh, Bun- uh, a Pilgrim would not have had a compelling if he didn't run across evangelists. The inference of the text is that evangelist had already got hold of Pilgrim and showed him he was a sinner. And evangelist opened up the scripture, which is what a good evangelist will do. And the evangelical uh, mission we all have. All of us are evangelists. Do you understand what I just stated? Now, when I talk about opening scripture, I am meaning literal, but I'm not meaning hyper literal. I shouldn't do this caveat, but I will. Right? I remember when God first started using me, and I'll just share it with you, because there are some among us that were with me back when God first drew me. And I knew that I was called to evangelism. I knew it. And one of the reasons why is because every time I learned something, I wanted to tell it. And I was just too dumb to be ashamed of the gospel. And so every opportunity I got, I shared the word of God everywhere. And I had the capacity of memorizing lots of scripture, as some of you know, but it was definitely acute back in those days. So a lot of times I find myself having conversations with people and I didn't bring my Bible. You know, we, I'm old. You know, we didn't have cell phones and nothing. Didn't even have pages in that day. I know you don't remember those days, son, but it was a day when there were no pagers. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Right? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways, right? Take not the word of truth utterly out out of my mouth, because I have hoped in your commandments, right? And so we have talked about, remember the word unto your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, because your word gives me life. So I actually learned scripture so that I could talk to people about scripture, even though I didn't have the Bible. Because the word of God came orally before it came written. You guys do understand that, right? Right. And so you and I are called to be living epistles written and known on the hearts of men. That means just just because you don't have your cell phone and don't have your Bible, you should have enough Bible in your heart that the Holy Ghost can stir it up if he's calling you to talk to somebody about Christ. And you can go here and you can go there and you can go yonder. Am I making some sense? And don't be afraid that you don't get the verses right because chapter and verses were additional. You read nowhere in the Bible where it says Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 23. Now, the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah somewhere. Right. If you seek me, you shall find me. Now I'm quoting scripture and the spirit of God uses scripture 
to illumine the mind, to enlighten the mind, to bring clarity or to convict the soul. Am I making some sense? So what I'm saying is we don't want to take a hyper literal position, but you and I, if we're going to share the word of God from our mouth, then Christ is really saying that it should just be a lifestyle kind of evangelism. You don't need to be running around with a Bible scaring people. Because, <laughs> you know, some people scared. What you got that in there for? What, what, what you bringing that in there for? What, what's that for? But as an evangelist, and what the Bible will tell you and I is that we're all called to evangelism. To be an evangelist simply means to be a grown-up Christian. I want you to get that. To be an evangelist simply means to be a grown-up Christian. And and all that means is that you're not a baby in the sense in which you don't have the ability to speak. Remember what Jeremiah said, I can't speak, Lord, because I'm a baby. And what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I cannot teach you deep things because you are babes. And he said it to the Hebrew uh, uh, Israelites in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, you guys should be teachers. But you need to be taught all over again. You're like babes. And so what I what I am not saying is that a baby Christian that's not solid in sound doctrine to some degree may not be competent and eloquent enough to actually share the word of God. But that should be a motivating factor for you to grow up because you should want to actually be speaking the things of God to people. You'll notice that if you raise a child up in a healthy home, he or she is trying to talk early as they can. Right. So you don't want to be one of those Christians. You know, I've been a Christian like for 855 years and I still don't feel like I'm comfortable enough to talk to people about Jesus. You got a problem. Are you hearing me? You got a real, real problem there. And so the, the, the emphasis of the outline was that the work of the evangelist, he declares the blessed path. Go back and listen to it. So beautiful. So point B pilgrim runs with his hands where? Obstinate and pliable, are they helpers or hinderers? And I would raise the question, why? What is obstinate in this account? Now, if you were reading your uh, outline, you would see that there are certain Bible verses that I grant you there. I'm going to give you two words that uh, occur in relationship to obstinate. I want you to get this. The first one is presumptuous. Obstinate was presumptuous. And obstinate was also carnal. So presumptuous and carnal, that's obstinate. Now, I'm going to talk about pliable, then I'll come back. Because pliable was the other, but this is a tandem, right? Your posse runs up on you. One of them is obstinate. The other one is pliable. Now, pliable is gullible and emotionally driven. He is shallow. So if we were dealing with the parable of the sword and the seed, and we are, Obstinate is the wayside hearer for whom the word of God doesn't at all penetrate his heart. He doesn't want any of it. He's already argued, oh, that old book, that book will make you crazy. That's presumptuous. Am I making some sense? But he's also carnal because he loves this present world. And this is people that you're going to deal with in your life. You're going to deal with people whose priority is this world. And you're going to deal with people who are obstinate in their nature. They're going to think they are smarter than you and therefore smarter than that book that God gave you. See, so obstinate is really a uh, lower version of worldly wise man. 
And again, I want to reserve worldly wise men for a fuller conversation because of everything he said, you and I need to know, okay? But when I say that pliable is, um, he's gullible and emotionally driven. He is shallow in his thinking. That is the stony ground hearer. The stony ground hearer, it appears that he is interested in the word of God. It appears that he's bearing some fruit, but because it doesn't have any root, as soon as a little trouble comes, he's down the road. Y'all got that, right? Fair weather friends. And it's important for you to know you can read that on your own. Now we're at what is called subpoint F, the slough of despond. What is that place? This is where I'm going to stop here. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. I'm going to talk that through to you. And then we're going to move into a conversation around leave the world behind. It'll be good. We'll have about 30 minutes to interact. How many? I want to see again. How many guys watched it? Good. Great. We got 80 percent. Excellent. It's a good, good group. That means we can have an advised conversation. So now what I want to say about the slough of despond could really be more fully developed. I'm, ru- I'm rushing through just for time's sake. But the slough of despond is a necessary experience for all Christians are all pilgrims on their way to conversion. The slough of despond is a necessary experience for all pilgrims on their way to conversion because the slough of despond is really a metaphor for the struggle of the heart and the mind when it is trapped by hindrances that start to mess with you psychologically and emotionally in terms of your assumption as to what it means to pursue God. Am I making some sense? I want to drill down into this just a little bit, and then we're going to read the account. The slough of despond was the marshy road, the muddy road that Pilgrim and, uh, and Pliable started wrestling through and Pliable was utterly offended of this pathway. Now, and I want you to capture why, but Pliable and Pilgrim are going into the slush and their outward appearance is now becoming muddy and filthy. Muddy and filthy. Their externality is changing as they go, and it's a symbol of them entering into massive struggles in their soul emotionally as to whether or not advancing further is worth it. The slough of despond is the place that is necessary for you and I to enter into so that God can strip us of all latent assumptions of dignity and self-righteousness and beauty and power. All right, I'm going to walk us through this because you need to know this. You cannot come to Christ under the false notion of beautiful rags and comeliness of character and deportment of being like you have some intrinsic qualities to get you to Jesus. 
It really is the carnal, fleshly, emotionally driven attitude that I can get to Jesus on my own strength. Raise your hand if you're keeping up with me because that way I can cut it through. I really want you to get this because in, in, uh, capture the metaphor. You're walking on solid ground, very little resistance. You're pretty motivated. You're excited. Pliable is gullible. He don't know what's coming. And, and, and Pilgrim is actually fairly ignorant because as much as he's learned a few things about the Bible, he does not know anything about getting to Jesus. His experience is not there. Am I making some sense? And here's what's going on. He's telling both obstinate and pliable all these beautiful things about the kingdom. Come on, man, let's go. Because in the kingdom, man, you get this blessing and you get that blessing. We had to the glory. The promises are wonderful in the word of God. So in pliable's mind, he thinks, man, this is great. I get to add to my blessings. Sound like prosperity preaching, doesn't it? Prosperity preaching is the default mechanism for anyone that does not understand that it's through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom. Prosperity preaching is always telling one side of the gospel. And that's why it's so popular today. If you ask God, he'll bless you. If you give your tithes, he'll multiply you. Press down, shake it together, run it over. Will a Lord pour into your bosom? Right, you didn't heard it before. You didn't heard all that foolishness. You didn't heard all that foolishness. And see, the devil loves to lie to you about, about experiences in God's grace by cutting off the other details that really are designed to challenge you at the level of faith, commitment, and perseverance. Y'all keeping up with me? Because the slough of despond now is going to challenge your capacity to persevere. I'm making some sense. Right, and so that brother Pliable, after his alligator shoes got filled with mud and his zoot suit got wet, he said, Chris, he said, Pilgrim, man, you didn't tell me all this was going down. And the text tells us as he's wrestling in the mud, he found a place nearby his home where he could climb up over the wall and get out. Did that make some sense? Now, again, this is not a literal uh, traversing. This is a psychological. This is a mental traversing. Pliable found it necessary to look back. He found it necessary to consider his old home and he discovered he was near enough to it that all he had to do was have a brief argument with with Pilgrim and make a beeline back home. Now, I'm not going to waste all the other time right now talking about what happens when you get home, but this is a description of the shallow ground here who plays church for about a month or two. And you'll meet a bunch of them. You'll meet a bunch of them. But here's what you need to know about Pilgrim. Are you ready? For Pilgrim, two things are marked. It didn't even dawn on him to go back. And in addition to that, his burden got heavier. Y'all keeping up with me? 
See, now, I told a lot of the class that we're dealing with systematic theology in this class, and the doctrine at present is called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints is the grace that God gives you to persevere and not fall away when trouble comes. There are two sides to the coin of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance is the grace to sustain your faith even in the midst of difficulty, so you can keep making progression no matter how ugly it gets. On the other side of that is God's capacity to preserve you from falling and keep you while you're pressing forward. And God has to continue to nurture that in you. And we'll see that when we go into interpreter's house and begin to deal with the seven visions. God has to keep you as you make progression, because as you are making progression, everything around you is dying. Y'all keeping up with me? Because sanctification is a call to mortification. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 10. That's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 10. If, look, don't even play this thing called my disciple if you're not ready to have difficult situations with loved ones. And so that's what Pilgrim is, that's what Pilgrim is dealing with. Am I making some sense? And then Pilgrim got to that place which you must get to. He got to the place where he was stuck. See, because once you're stuck, guess what? The only way you're going to get out of that is with what? Help! Wasn't that a beautiful brother? Those are some beautiful brothers, our sisters, when they come along and be ready to help you know God sent them, right? Now, the only reason you're going to miss help is if you're proud. Help walk by say, just you all right? Yeah, man, I'm cool. Go ahead on, man. I'm just chilling here. I'm just sitting there chilling. I'm, I'm all right. God resists the pride. Boy, you sinking. Just you sinking. I'm, I'm all right, man. The, the mug. Man, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm doing good. Man, I'm about the Lord is good, man. The Lord is good. I'm sinking deep in sin. Far from the peaceful shore. Right? Deeply stained within. Right? And so... Until you and I are brought to the place where we understand we will not make it without help. All right, so this is what Sister Hannah teaches us. I'll stop here. Hannah said the Lord kills. That's what Hannah said. Now, you know, again, Christians don't believe this stuff. The Lord kills. Does the Lord kill? I'm describing him killing now. The whole journey from him leaving the house to here is a killing. It's called the doctrine of mortification. You and I have to die to live again, right? The Lord kills and then the Lord does what? Right. So when we say that we're alive in Christ, what we're talking about is being alive again. That means something was killed. The Lord killeth and makes alive. He bringeth down to the grave and then he does what? This is the doctrine of the resurrection, isn't it? And this is Hannah talking because Hannah was going through a death experience for a long time before God gave her life. Listen to what it says in verse seven. I'm going to walk through verse 10 and then we're going to switch channels if you guys can bear it. The Lord maketh poor and the Lord maketh what? This is the beauty of the nature of the gospel. We have to be humbled before we're exalted. And that's because Christ was humbled. Before he was exalted, he said, the servant is not greater than the master. If these things happen to him, they have to happen to us, right? He bringeth low and he lifteth up. Look at verse eight. 
We're going to walk through. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill. Did he do that for pilgrim? To set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. This is Hannah talking in her triumph, isn't it? Verse nine, verse nine, let's follow this through. Listen to what she says. He will keep the feet of his saints. Did he keep pilgrim? He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Here it is. I want you to get this for by strength shall no man prevail. You got the lesson? See, Pilgrim knew that by strength. He didn't. I love this because once Pilgrim is helped, that's called our Ebenezer. Your help in mind as a child of the living God is the resident Lord. What does he call the Holy Spirit? He's the resident Lord. He's your helper. He helps us with our infirmities, right? The helper is there with you because you're too weak to make this journey on your own. And he needs you to actually glorify God by saying help when you're in trouble. And a lot of Christians do not make it down this road well because we're too proud to say help even to the Holy Ghost. Does that make sense? Even to the Holy Ghost. Pride will make you as stupid as a dodo bird, won't it? For by strength shall no man prevail. What if, what if, this is my last thought here, what if Pilgrim was able to just trudge his way through and get out on the other side? Wouldn't he be able to boast? that he was stronger than pliable and stronger than obstinate. And now he's glorying in his flesh. But the Bible tells you and I in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God will not share his glory with anyone. You understand that? That's why he raises up the base things to confound the wise. He chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise and mighty in the world. He chooses sinners who are willing to admit that they don't have the power or the grace in them. And then God employs them with that necessary strength and power to get them down the road. That, as he says, as it is written, if they're going to glory, let them glory only in the Lord. This is why he brings you down so you can give him glory in the deliverance. All right, we're going to stop right there. Uh, stop right there and turn the corner. I don't need somebody with, uh, wanting to run with the mics because I'm getting ready to uh, tag you with a few things. Before I let you out here, I need some mic runners. Come on up, Jonas. Come on up, uh, uh, JR, if we got mics on both sides. Um, I'm going to do this only because we promised, and, and I'm going to be actually sharing with you guys some things around this topic that needs to be discussed. Let me see here. I don't need to. You're just being, you know you're just being funny. Oh, well, then we'll see if there's a theological imperative there. Let me do something here. I got to get my notes out of my car because I want to make sure I use them. So how do we redeem the time when it comes to secular matters that 
that are packaged and framed in secular contexts. I'm going to say this broadly, but I could be talking about a lot of things. How, how should the believer view things in the world um, as secular and as carnal as they may be? This is going to be um, rhetorical, but I do want you to engage me with it for a minute. Maybe the Lord will give us a little time here as we uh, begin to raise the question, is it redeemable to be in a secular context, um, uh, entertainment, sports, um, education, um, business, where it is not immediately obvious how those institutions or structures function and perform in a way that we can uh, derive some kind of spiritual benefit or some kind of theological insight from it. The reason I ask that is because your worldview, how you view things, is a lens by which you can determine whether or not that event that you have experienced has uh, helpful benefits that can be derived for yourself or for someone else. The, the question that I also might raise as we're thinking this through is, are you, as some might be, given to the fallacy of assuming that if it's not completely a biblical event, i.e. something couched thoroughly in a scriptural context, it's of no benefit to me. There's no, nothing I can derive from it by which I can be made wiser, be made more productive, or be made more insightful, because there are people with that kind of rationale. It's not a wise rationale, but they have it. The assertion that somehow there's a dividing line between let's say, the Christian world and the non-Christian world so that there's a clean break. The only people I want to deal with is Christians. I want a Christian mechanic. I want a Christian doctor. I want a Christian uh, cook. I want a Christian lawyer. I want a Christian this and Christian that. Now, the assumption that you have a Christian this, Christian that, or Christian, the other thing is the assumption that there's a clean distinction of moral and ethical integrity between Christians and the world. I'm going to teaching again. You're in class. So if you're going to sleep, I'm sorry. The assertion is that the saved people can't derive any kind, any kind of wisdom or understanding or benefit or insight from an unsaved community. Would that be true? No. Right. And so the idea of watching secular programs or secular movies or engaging in secular activity, whatever that may be, the Christian really still does have to say, is there a redeemable component out of this by which I can benefit? And, and I would argue, yes, your Bible would clearly lay this out. There's virtually no time in your Bible where uh, believers are engaging in their journey through this world where they are not doing it with unbelievers. There's virtually nowhere in your Bible where they are not integrated. And this is what I want you to be thinking about now as I, I, I you know, uh, move into our discourse. Integrated thinking allows you to benefit from King Hiram as you're building the temple of the Lord. And there's a pagan king that owns a rock quarry with all of the best rocks in it. Did that make some sense? 
and he's deriving something from you and you're deriving something from him because you're both created in the what? Imago Dei. And because you're both created in the Imago Dei, he will have vestiges of insight from which you can benefit, young men, young women. And in some cases, he will have vestiges of insight that you will derive from of which you will not be able to find among your Christian peers. Because your Christian peers don't know everything about everything in the secular context at a competent enough level for you to always defer to them. I'm making some sense, right? I'm getting ready to make an argument that I want us to be able to enjoy as I lay down some pillars around what I am calling a parallel contrasting uh, relationship between uh, the pilgrim's progress and leave the world behind. Leave the world behind. So I'm getting ready to say a bunch of things about it, and I do want some engagement. I'm only going to deal with maybe about four, five, six, seven, eight, ten observations, and I want you to engage me. The first thing I want you to think about uh, with the idea of leave the world behind, that is a thoroughly biblical concept. That is a thoroughly biblical concept. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world. Did y'all get that? Neither the things that are in the world. For the things that are of the world are not of the Father. And to not and to love the things of the world would indicate not having an adequate understanding of the love of the father who is extricating you from these world systems. The love of God would not be in us if we had a love for the world like obstinate or like pliable. So then if I actually see a movie title that's quoting first John chapter two, verse 15. The next thing I'm going to ask is, who are the creators of this content? Y'all keep up with me because what I'm sharing with you is how to actually benefit from the secular world breathing in and out. Because I know that God has written his law on their hearts just like he did mine. I also know that they can't do one thing good or bad unless the sovereign Lord dictates it. Also know that I can learn imminently from a lost person because a lost person may have certain prerequisite conditions in their life that will facilitate for me insights in areas that I don't have in my own life. Am I making some sense? It's very possible that the creators of this content, and you know a movie is a content created by someone. Is that true? They had to think this through. They had to, they had to actually develop a, a model predicated upon a pre-existing model to serve as an, a framework to develop their whole discourse or at least an antithesis. Because if you're going to do, uh, uh, you know, creative content, you're going to generally have creative content emerging out of some, some other pre-existing idea. Because you're not God. So stuff is not just coming out of your, your, out of your brain. 
What I've learned about human beings is human beings are thieves. Do you agree with that? So stay with me a little bit because I want to drill down into this so that you can learn how to see movies the right way. Because a lot of you, a lot of us don't see movies the right way. You shouldn't be wasting your money because if you don't have the right lens on, you're wasting your time. But if I actually do know that God created them in the Imago Dei, the vast majority of any creative content is going to be stolen from someone that has already done it before. Can I get an amen? But also what that would infer is that the content that they're stealing ultimately is coming from God, even if they pervert it. Right. So besides me just having always had a crush on this sister called Julia Roberts, just always had a crush on her from uh, from the uh, Brockovich uh, movie. Yeah, not no, not pretty woman. I, I'm sorry. I, I, look, I'm still from the hood. Okay, I mean, what I'm saying is that <laughs> what I'm saying is I actually enjoy the movies that she chooses to make because it's an indication of her character. She's not always out there putting her butt out and trying to show off her beauty. And that is creative content selection that's wise. Then when, and and I didn't actually know that she was part of this film because I went because somebody told me, Pastor, I need to know your view on what Obama is doing, the Obamas, Michelle and and Barack. And I said, okay, reluctantly, I said, okay. So I'm not even going in thinking about my girl. But then once I started watching the movie, she don't even have no makeup on. She 500 years old and still cute. I said, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Just walk with me, cause just walk with me for a minute. And, and I know you know we ain't got nothing against makeup. What I'm saying was she, and she actually is one of the producers of the movie. She chose to be part of this predictive programming event. It's a predictive programming event, of which there are hundreds of movies that are predictive programming. Did you guys know that? All of them are not predictive programming. Don't overgeneralize. They're not, but a lot of them are. Um, when she chose to play this role, she chose to play it fundamentally raw. I appreciate that. I'm getting ready to get into to that element of it. So the creator, the content creators is, you know, JR, but then also, no pun intended, JR. Um, then also, um, you got this brother called Mr. I forget his first name, Ismael. Mr. Ismael. I said, whoa, that's Jewish. It's a code name for Jewish, okay? Because it's Arabic. So like Ishmaelites, Israelites, there's no doubt about that. And, and, and some of us already know, if y'all ain't scared to talk about it, our Jewish brothers are behind a lot of the content that's going down in our world and not accidentally. Okay? I mean, you got to go back to Cecil B. DeMille's and then the Ten Commandments. But my point is, if you open your eyes, here's what you get to discover, that the content creators are using material that is derived from real experiences in the world, from sources in many cases that are at high intelligence levels that you and I don't ever get a chance to have insight into. And what they do is water it down into 
entertainment modalities. Okay, I'm not going to give you all of the list of predictive programming movies. I'll just, uh, what's his name? Mission Impossible. What's our brother's name? Tom Cruise. He'd been, he's been under assignment to do that for decades. Okay? And so you and I have talked about it. If, if you look at those programs, they are saying a lot of things about worldviews, a lot of things about technology, particularly where we're at. So one of the things I can say to you, if you're listening, uh, I hope you are, you have to know that the world you live in now was gradually put together brick by brick, stone by stone, propositionally, rhetorically, um, in, in, in the entertainment modality for us for decades now. And things that are in place now functioning were made movies way before they came to be. So all you have to do, child of God, when Jesus told you to be discerning, to be circumspect, to know your environment, to know the wiles of the wicked one, to understand that if you're going to be talking about fighting against principalities and powers in heavenly, in high places, in high places, it's going to be outside of the church, too, as it was with Christ. And so for the Christian, if I'm going to be helpful to lost people, I need to know what lost people are dealing with. Am I making some sense? And if you can't speak to some of these political, social issues that are um, the framework for controlling and manipulating and dominating, I can go deep right now for framing and controlling and manipulating and dominating. We can go deep right now. Your fellow human beings who are utterly ignorant of the mass psychosis that's dominating our world, which our girl said at the end of the movie, did she not? Raise your hand if you guys caught that. She plainly said it when you got into what we call a collaboration mode. Collaboration mode. So now the movie is Leave the World Behind. What is the nemesis theme of it? A cyber attack. There's nothing, listen, there's nothing nonchalant about that proposition. There's nothing nonchalant about that. If you and I think that, oh, here we go again with conspiracy theory, then I know you're dumb. I know you're uninformed. I know that you don't know that we've already been having cyber attacks all over our world for now about a decade and small skirmishes here and there. I know that you don't know that. I know that you don't know that we were told about this even before 9-11-2001 because I talked about this at the beginning of our ministry in 1996, I talked about where we are today. I talked about this in 1996, before 9-11. When 9-11 came, we knew that that was a harbinger of things to come at the higher level of um, uh, artificial intelligence, technology, because it was at the dot-com era as well, and, and the expansion of the internet with Bill Gates and all of those cats. We already knew this. Like, the thing that you have to actually know is the, the, the powers that be that govern the destinies of nations and, and manipulate politics and therefore collaborate with, with science and technology, they actually need you to know some of this stuff before it happens. Because predictive programming is all about calming you down so then once it's inserted or employed, you don't over panic. Because you are spoon fed it through propaganda 
enough to where once you start seeing it, the subconscious says, I've seen this already. Am I making some sense? Right. And, and by the way, by the way, by the way, this is why entertainment is so absolutely compelling. And what do I mean by that? Uh, most of us are compelled by entertainment because it has substratums of themes and ideas that are so insightful that it lures us in because we want to know more. Okay. And I can tell you the rabbit trails I've gone off into since I was a little boy. And I'm not going to do it, but I've always been into comic books. I've always been into Spider-Man and Batman and all those cats. And then to watch them morph, transform into real human characters now taking on the hybrid of artificial intelligence. All of that was the gradation up to where we are. They were telling us about this in the 50s and the 60s. All of this was military activity before it became public. All right, so, so let me go on if I got your attention on why it's important that if you have a biblical lens, you can learn some things and you can talk to people outside about how that's an antichrist system, how this is unbiblical, how this is a mockery of the biblical model. So let me see if I can walk through this and then we can get into some, I'm going to do half of it and then we can do Q&A. So Pilgrim's Progress versus Leave the World Behind has parallels and contrasts. It's a commentary on the wisdom It's a commentary on the wisdom of a biblical worldview and a sovereign God in control of this old world order. See, so like you have to know that God is in control of this old world order. This is what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that what you see them doing should remind you that God is in control because God has already told you these are the things they are going to do. Does that make some sense? Right. So what you want to do when you when you use your lens of analysis and critique is you don't want your lens to be too small to forget that God is big and behind and designed to say, I create good. I create evil. I create the darkness. I create the light. I, the Lord, do all these things. You got to remember that. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, simple. I haven't quoted in a long time for some people that are just freaking out right there. Pull that verse up so they can get it. In other words, God is in control of the evil. Now, if he's not, we're in trouble. Am I making some sense? We're in big trouble because I can tell you right now, if we go down the rabbit hole of artificial intelligence in combination with the biosecurity state and biological warfare that's happening right now is not a good luck. I can tell you that right now. Not a good look. Not a good look. And people intuitively know this. Okay, so the the question will be, do you want to know it? Or do you want to stick your head in the sand and act like it doesn't exist? We had to have that question back in 1996 when we started Grace. Because when we started Grace, we knew certain things were coming and we knew we had to deal with one or two things. Stay in the midst and preach the gospel And be aware of those things because we got to tell people what we see or run to the hills, which is the fundamental imperative or impulse of the movie. The impulse of the movie was to run to the hills. Is that true? All right. Is that biblical? Say yes, because I want you to I want you to be wrong in this class. 
Let me see if I can help you. So all through your Bible, I told you this year, last year, resets are a biblical concept. Resets are a biblical concept. God allows wickedness to go on for so long and then he disrupts. Turns things upside down and starts all over again. What's the first major macro reset you know in your Bible? Hurry up. The flood. Of which predicating the flood was a period of unimaginable evil with giants running the show. That's our paradigm. Y'all keep it up with me, right? That's why I love my Bible. Because I see those same hoodnicks right now operating. The same people, same, same spirit, same authority, same dominion, same arrogant, pompous, in-your-face authorities. And I taught, I taught you guys this a couple of weeks ago when we were in the book of Micah. And I said in Micah chapter 2, verse 1, the reason why wicked people do what they do it's because they can. Woe to them that devise iniquity, that work evil upon their beds when the morning is light. They practice it because it's in their power to do it. Now, do you see that? Use that to keep yourself sane when you get pissed off with them. Am I making sense? Right, because what you'll try to do is you'll try to find some other complex reason why they're doing it. They, they do it because they have power to do it, which means if I can, if I can infer a biblical pro, prohibition for us, are you ready? This is why you don't want all power. I don't want all power. I don't want to have a level of power to be able to do something for which in my delusional mind, I can do it because I got the power to do it. This is beautiful. When you pull and broke, it's a beautiful thing. Because you're limited to just your imagination. You're in the temptations. And so I'm just saying, the point is, is that they do it because they have the what? That's their rationale. I got so much more that I can say about this. Let me say a few more things. I'll open the mic and then I'll advance. The idea of leaving the world behind is another warning. It's coded in a secularized, inverted Pilgrim's Progress journey. The world is falling apart. That's the way they were framing it. And they needed to escape. I love this. I love this. Um, one of the uh, producers of the movie is actually called. Yeah, it's a producer. Actually call, and I just want you to see this. this, this you can't make this stuff up. We're going to be singing this on Sunday. Higher Ground. Mm. Higher Ground Productions. Don't freak out. Stay with me. Y'all good? Are y'all good? Well, all I'm saying is, if you take the time to read the footnotes and all of that, you're going to see all kind of biblical insights. Why? Because these people are former or present religious people. Why would you assume that people in Hollywood don't go to somebody's church? Am I making sense? Why would you assume that they don't know the Bible or Torah or the Quran or our Hindu books? Why would you assume that? Why would you assume that they would neglect the material necessary to draw in the vast majority of the world that's already preconditioned by religious notions? 
If I were a content creator, I would do all kinds of movies with peripheral religious components to it to draw you in. I want to get paid. Does that make some sense? I want to get paid. I'm not going to make movies that are completely alien to your worldview or your passions or your longings and drives. I'm going to make sure it sounds like you, looks like you, even if I invert the words, like. How many of you guys know how early on the fundamental emotional disposition was conveyed by the main actor in, in this person? In, in my opinion, the movie was really about Julia. Okay, now we can talk about the other cats here in a moment. I don't really mind. But Julia, if you watch the movie carefully, there's some kind of generally placid events going on before they get to a resolve to leave. And in the film, the camera zooms in on her and she opens her mouth and she says, I want to get out of here. Because I hate the world. I want to get out of this place because I hate people. People are the world. Y'all, get, y'all follow me? Now, you know, uh, someone was asking me, what is the theological uh, implications of using the F-bomb all the time? I will tell you what it is. No, it, um, profanity is a mechanism that the world has always used because its underlying disposition It's always anger. You have to know that. Humanity is angry. Okay, so you're saying, I ain't never heard that before. Y'all grew up with mamas and daddies that wasn't saved? How many of you guys grew up in the house where they was angry? 85%. There it is right there. And when you think about the phenomena of profanity, it is simply the unfettered expression of an emotion that gets to satisfy itself with pejorative speech. Did that make some sense? And, and this particular word, we could drill down into it deeply, but it really has everything to do with a hyper-narcissism of self-worship. Did that make some sense? This is what we're going to see in Romans chapter 1. So when we get to Romans 1, where I mean, uh, verses 18 and following, in our Romans road, uh, Pilgrim's progress through Romans, uh, Romans, what we're going to see in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the rest of the chapter, is the, um, the uh, micromanaging of culture at the biological level and transforming it into a self-centered, hypersexual sort of um, egotistical expression where it's all about self-sex, which would be equivalent to hating the world. Because if sex is at the level of homo instead of hetero, you can't produce life. I taught this back when we first started Grace. What we're dealing with is a culture of death. So you and I can filter this through with huge implications because of technology being so acutely refined today at the microbiological level that we are being transformed into something that is basically a stage left out of organic humanity into transhumanism. You know this. What would be 
a more appropriate attitude to usher in transhumanism than I hate the world. Am I making some sense? Right now, she she, you know, she she had to work her way through it, as you know. But I totally get that attitude. All right. I'm going to do one more thing here. I'm going to do one more thing here to keep you honest. I guarantee you in this room, about 60, 60 people or so. Somebody among us said the same thing Julia said. There's one. Can I get another two? Three, four. So he said, we got a few, few lively hands. F the world. Right? Stay with me. Well, stay with me. So this is what I love about accurate movie making. Because it's a bridge to be built between Julia and you. There's a bridge to be built between Julia and you. You're not better than her. Who do you think you are? Titus chapter three, verse two. Listen to it. You're not better than her. Even if you've got a handle on your cursing, you cursing your heart. You're not better than her. And she's just being explicit about her frustration. And she's they have a relief valve. I mean, the other element when we get there is that this is a family centered movie. This is a family-centered movie. That's biblical. It's inverted, but it's biblical. You see what I mean by how to derive biblical insight? A husband and a wife and two kids. That's Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Sorry, it is. Eve said, the world. Didn't she? Did she? See, Christians, you, this, uh, this is R-rated Christianity tonight, but you better get it. Didn't she? She ate that fruit, and, and, and now the world is, right? Are y'all keeping up with me? See, so you see how you have to read it with a biblical lens. Otherwise, the only other lens you're going to read it with is a self-righteous lens, lens that says, God, I'm, like, I'm glad I'm not like Julia. No, yeah, you are. See what I'm getting at? Yeah, you are. I mean, our first parents said, screw the world. See what I'm getting at? And God didn't throw them away. He didn't abandon them to hell. He didn't say, girl, I didn't know you could cuss like that. He knew what she was going to do. He said, in the day that you eat, not if, when. This is why Isaiah said, you guys are transgressors from the womb. I know what you are. God knows what we are. See what I'm saying? Right. And then, you know, we can bring the other couple into the equation who own the home. And if you, you know, don't know how to do theology around that, I'm fine with that. That's Afrocentrism. I'm good with that. That's Afrocentrism on the top. I'm good with that. This is 21st century. They know not to let the Afro element be slaves. They know. I get that. Do you get that? But that's biblical, too. Now, follow me. Because it all started there. It all started in Africa. The oldest civilizations are African civilizations. Y'all keep it up with me? So here come, here come our African-American brother with his quite daughter, who is, I mean, that girl is something else. But they roll on up, Bonnie and Clyde, 
And then there's a clash of civilizations in that small, small space from which we can learn. From which we can learn. Because the goal of the enemy is to keep us divided. Didn't the movie teach you that? That's the goal of the movie to keep us divided. This is why secular systems don't like gospel churches because like in our room, multi-ethnic groups. Am I making sense? Right. And so we have we have a plumb line. We have a grid of interpretation that allows us to walk in unity. White, black, Latina, Asian, all of us, Filipinos. And that's Christ and the word of God. It allows us to see the world through the same lens with the same value system. Ah, the enemy doesn't get us around something as superficial as melanin and skin skin tone. We're not that stupid. We already know that we're all complex melanin creatures with all kind of ethnic groups in us. It doesn't matter what we look like externally. It's way too complex to be just called black and white. You got to be dumb. And so, you know, when they went through their struggles, it was rooted in a prejudice and fear from both sides. Y'all saw that until it became evident that if we don't work together, we're going to fall. That's a pretty good message, isn't it? Is that a pretty good message? I mean, I can go deep. I can go deep. I, you know, I can go deep. I think what I'll do right now is I'm going to open the mic for some conversation with you guys and I might talk about a little bit more, but I'm definitely going to deal with it on my Monday show because I'm going to be getting into some bioweaponry on our Monday show. And I'll talk about how I do make sure that before we close, I ask and answer the question about why the Obamas. OK, because, you know, I'm good. No, I'll forget who has a question or an observation who, who wants to who wants to chime in. All right, let's go. Um, oh, should I go? Yeah. Okay, so I initially did not want to see the movie because I feel like I've been very of the world and um, have realized in the last two years how I've been predictably programmed um, and so predictably programmed that I can totally relate to Julie. I can relate to this whole entire movie, mm-hmm. like, on so many levels. I can go deep. Um, so... I really could relate to Julia, especially in the initial scene. And I know she's a she's a brilliant, brilliant actress. And how her she wasn't you got nothing from her in the beginning except for a cold-hearted, you know what? And um, right from the new, beginning, you knew that she made more money than her husband. Um, the way that she ran the show, the way that she packed, she you know just the whole whole thing. I mean, great insights, by the way. Think about what she just stated. This is why I say great insights. And women generally do this unless you're lazy. So what our sister is doing here is showing you, again, how you micro-critique one of the actors across an expected stereotype in our society. She picked up on Julia having the power position in the marriage. She picked up on it. That's important to pick up. Because that toxicity is still in our sisters, whether you want to admit it or not. Go on. It's it's very much, and um, I feel it very much in myself. And um, even in the marriage, and even though I have a very masculine husband, um, what we do as women is we emasculate him in our own minds, mm-hmm. and that we're bigger and better, and 
the producers and run the show and trivialize our husbands as our covering and um, even went to the point where like she became the the savior of she jumped in the like she saw she got out of the car which I would have done too I mean before I'm who I am now and she's going her husband's in the car with the kids and she's going and looking at the Teslas to see what's happening and then she he she jumps in his seat and starts like driving around like we're better drivers than men like that's just so stupid it's stupid and so anyway and then the whole thing of how her husband like she he asked her for sex and then she's like you know like like he's a dog and then she's like okay here's your bone come on let's go and then how she starts like being attracted to this very tall handsome masculine man and it was just so predictive programming that it just bought into the whole thing of what's happening in the world. And I just say, praise the Lord that I've, I, I've, I'm in this church and being taught well and understanding how, as women, we are totally 100% deteriorating our whole lifestyle. And now that I have the covering of my husband, I'm very reliant on it, and I really like it a lot. It's very, I mean... And I don't get offended when he says that's enough now, which he has to kind of tell me it's enough because I get kind of cuckoo. Excellent. And I'm going to clip it right there and be just like him. Because <laughs> I am a husband. But it's a great piece. It's a great piece. And I want to say two things about it. But there's more to be said about that, the, the scene where she goes and takes over the car. Because what it indicated was the reversing of roles in sharing. I'll talk about that in a moment, a reversing of roles and sharing. And I'm just showing you how to keep a gospel lens on this because that is what you see through the Bible too. The Bible's clear. There are times when God is using our sisters. Then there's times when he's using our brothers. They are working collaboratively, okay? And, and her husband, he had already did the heavy lifting, okay? I'm going to talk about that in a moment. He did the heavy lifting, so now it's her turn. So, because he went out. He did what he was supposed to do. He's a protector, Did he go out? He already went out. So now she's sharing in that because she got an acute insight and they're trying to get back to where they were going. And now she's saving them again. Remember, it was her choice to leave. So she's running into the danger. Then God gives her an insight. Now they're going back. All right. So, you know, I can rescue the brothers, you know, because he's he's a little passive. Ain't no passive brothers in here. He's a little passive, but, you know, he has his good qualities. Got some issues. Miss Miss Brock should be on. Yeah, I um, echo the sentiments that Elisa made. Even though I didn't see uh, the movie, um, I did read um, what's called the Bibliophile.com, mm-hmm. which gave a really good, mm-hmm. very Critique. detailed synopsis of the whole movie. Um, it's almost like seeing uh, the movie, but it was a way to kind of quickly see it. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't quite sure at what point I would see it or if I would, if, you know, I would see it or, you know, if I would see it at all. But I may, um, still giving it some thought. Um, but it was a quick way to just kind of be prepped for tonight as well. And I'm kind of inspired to consider looking at it. But what I wanted to say is that I, I definitely... Um, Support and I, you know, what what Elisa said because I did get a chance to talk to someone who had seen the movie and they said the same thing is that the women in the roles, you know, um, Amanda, that is, 
really took the strong lead. And even in planning the Airbnb getaway, she didn't really, I don't think she consulted her husband at all. She just like, hey, we're going to do this thing. So I knew um, kind of what was to come. But what I wanted to say is from, from reading the bibliophile.com is that it looks like the young daughter, Rose, mm-hmm. the 13-year-old, sure. looked as though you know, she was you know, extremely faithful and had a lot of strength of character. Um, in the the synopsis or the movie or the book, whatever you know version you saw or read, is that you know she kind of held it together. She was bold enough to keep leaving the house, going out to the other house in the field to gather supplies, even though initially you know she was a little scared. You know, being um, we'll have to person. we'll have to press into more because yeah. there's more to it than that. Yes, that's okay. what you would have to see the movie. Gotcha, gotcha. Go ahead on. Now, I want to ask you, would Amanda, again, I haven't seen the movie, but would Amanda, the mother, be kind of like Pilgrim? Would she be an example of Pilgrim or no? Hold on. No, no. Don't say no. Think it through. Because I'm thinking, you know, she's the one who Don't just say no. Think through. Think through the complexity of the proposition. What I stated was this here is an inversion of the Pilgrim's progress. Mm -hmm. That means you have to see things through the reverse lens. Okay, so think this through for a moment, because what what we can easily do is create like an ideal framing, plop it on it and cut off every other insight that you can get when you don't invert it. Right. Like even what our sister Lisa did, she was able to see the the fallacies in Julia's uh, sort of uh, uh, forward assertive behavior. Right. You can see that because this is predictive programming that's been going on since the feminist movement up to now. But you should also hear what, how her husband actually negotiated a woman he still really loves. That is a story. This is not about dividing men and women. You know, forgive me for my passion. But my point is that even when you are working through an analysis, don't get trapped in the bifurcation of the left to right. Go, what was it about her husband that allowed him to negotiate her behavior like that to stay in? Because, I mean, he wasn't so broke he couldn't leave. Today they pulling out. Now, he has his own issues. But guess what? I give him credit for staying in his family and doing something that would actually be helpful, listen carefully. Their intuition about the world falling apart was right. That was not a mere conspiracy theory in the ether. They escaped the bombs dropping in the city. Y'all keeping up with me? So think about it like this. Yeah, I'm talking about the little girl. Did you have anything else? Keep that mic close. Uh, it ain't got nothing to do with the light. There you go. The battery's probably dead. So all, the other thing I would say is that initially I was thinking of Amanda as pilgrim, but I guess really the whole family could be essentially pilgrim. And, and you know, as a unit, you could think of them as a unit being pilgrim. They have to be. Yeah, because they're moving together have as, to a be family, as a family, even unit. though she's like the leader. And they then the little be. girl, um, Rose, I'm just thinking... Maybe uh, symbolic of faithful, 
You're, you're doing you're doing well. Um, just because, you're doing well, um, girl, for not watching the movie. Yeah, she's doing well for not watching because she want to avoid the synopsis. The, was she wants really to avoid good. the profanity. I don't blame her. She don't want all of the toxic stuff in the scene. But she's doing the right thing. Um, we'll talk about her in a moment because she is the through line in the movie, movie, the little girl. And this is where you want to understand gospel too. God gives insight to the babies. He gives epiphany to the ones less enamored, less impacted by the distractions of life. So there's a tear down to the babies. The babies have access to insights that adults don't. That is meant to be seen. And that is a biblical concept, right? God humbles the proud. He lifts up the, the, the humble the last are first and the first is last, et cetera, et cetera. That paradigm is certainly there. All right. Anybody else want to keep going? Anybody else want um, to chime I in? A, I have a mic. I, I can't see you. There, um, who? Right who? Okay. Go on, sis. In the opening of the movie, um, like she was saying about the young, the, the young, the young girl, and when they were on the beach, she saw a ship coming towards the, the dry land. And one of the things that I got from that is that everybody was just almost zombie-like, except her. She was very aware of that shift, and she kept saying, it's getting closer, it's getting closer. And it wasn't until her last, it's really close, that the family and everybody on the beach, it wasn't just that family, because it was everybody that was on the beach, just sat there, you know, like they were just zoned out to what was coming towards them. Or, or no, it's not going to hit land, you know. Um, then another thing about the girl later on in the movie, she said something that was really profound about asking for help and not receiving that help when it's given to you. That's the one quasi-biblical moment in the movie. You know, it's a, it's a quip that's used in Christianity about, you know, right. the metaphor of God using providence and you ign- neglecting providence. Right. And then one more thing. I don't know if... Um, if anybody looked up the name of the ship that was coming into land, sure, they wanted sure, you to see that. Sure, it was very important. Sure, it's um, all it's the the term for predictive programming. If you're going to really do a good job, so I'll just help you now. Like I said, I got forty, fifty things I could say. I'll do more of that in my Monday show. They're called clues. So you have to know how to look for clues. Um, so if I recall the. The oil cruiser was called White Lion. White Lion, right. And a white lion is really simply a symbol of the invasion of China into our territory. So the cyber attack was already presupposed to be the battle between the West and the East, the battle between China what, and America. Wasn't it also the first slave ship into? What's that? I said, wasn't it also the first slave ship that came into America? That oil liner? Yes, the white lion, the name oh, of the ship. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. That, that, the correlation would be interesting, but I don't know. I don't think that there was a slavery motif in that, but there, that correlation may be helpful if people confirm it. We're not going to say it unless it's so. But what we know about the oil liner coming in, there's several things, and you, you can, we can just go ahead on it and plop it down. Um, because it was cued in earlier in the movie when they were headed, they were escaping, using the metaphor of escaping. They were escaping the, um, they were escaping the judgment, and as they're driving up to um, 
the, the area in which they were staying. It was called comfort something, um, which is an interesting term in itself. The little girl was enamored by the program Friends on her computer. And then her computer stopped. And so what the little girl was interested in was actually wanting to see the end of the film because for her, real life existed within that matrix, not around her. She felt like nobody listened to her, not even her own family. And that would have been a pattern going on in their life with her in her home while mom and dad are arguing and fighting and and having fits. And the little girl is clairvoyant. She's insightful. She's intuitive. She's sensitive. And, and, And again, what we are talking about is how God can take the weak things of the world and confound the mighty. And so she was she was always trying to escape the judgment. And because she was, she was much more keen to anomalies. So the anomaly was as they're all on the beach and the beach is a metaphor of a horizon between the land and the sea. That's your Bible. That is the horizon between the land and the sea. He's the God of the land and the sea. The horizon becomes that demarcation between that which is solid and that which is shaky. That's your Bible. And so to see the Uh, that oil cruiser coming in the way she did means that she was sensitive to anomalies. I'm going to lock this conversation down here a minute around that because it's really important what that was, what that was about. She was sensitive to anomalies and you and I should be sensitive to anomalies. We should be sensitive when things are out of order. We should be sensitive when chaos begins to emerge and everybody is missing it. Am I making some sense? Right. That's that was her role from the beginning. She was seeing it. And as our sister was saying, everybody on the beach is playing and having a good time. And as calamity is coming their way, they're videoing it. This is called being sleep in the matrix under the blue pill. This is sleep in the matrix under the blue pill. I promise you, we just went through that with COVID. And and, and people don't understand the parallelism between the two. A direct hit of an anomaly. I mean, I don't want to unpack it anymore because we should already know that that was a fiasco that did not have to occur. And the whole world was assaulted by it. And they're still pretending that the ocean liner didn't run up on the beach. Isn't that also a parallel to Pilgrim Progress as far as the slowful? Would that be like part of that? No, it could. We'll be picking up on that a little bit later. It could, obviously, because you're talking about characters who are endangering their own selves for being sleep. That's coming post cross. We'll be dealing with that, too, because obviously you got presumptuous, you got slothful and, uh, and and all kinds of quality people who, you know, are supposed to be on the pathway, utterly blind, like you said. So, you know what? Good. I'm going to give you credit for that because that's what I want you to see. Right. And, and, and Christ tells us to be circumspect. He tells us to be vigilant. He tells us to be watchful. He gives us clues, too. 
Okay, so like Christ gave the first century church the clues of what was coming down in 37 years. He says, you're going to have this, you're going to have that, you're going to have this, you're going to have that, you're going to have this, you're going to have that. Be ready. Then you know what he said? The same way they said, he said, be ready to flee to the hills. Do you guys remember that? When you see the abomination that make it desolate, flee to the mountains. That's what they did. This is a, the, the, uh, the, uh, the pre-Christ prophecy was with Lot. Because Lot is living in the same time bomb of a world that's coming under judgment. And he's oblivious to it. But because he's one of God's elect, the angels come to warn him. You guys know that. Then he turns around and try to tell his family. And they don't get it because they're oblivious. They're trapped by the matrix as well. And then the angel snatches him and the two little girls. There it is again. Right. And everybody else is is consumed in the judgment. And so the parallels just just there's so many there's so many here in in the movie. What it did around. I'll let you speak in the movie. What it did was once. The calamities started occurring and the calamities were the satellites had got knocked off course. They were shifted by some kind of attack and every coordinate was out of order. All of your coordinates were off. And so planes were crashing and the boats were doing what they did and the birds are doing what they're doing and the deer are doing what they're doing. So the coordinates were off that the thing that holds our GPS together a GPS system that our planes require, our ships require, our trains require, our cars require. You guys got that? So once they were altered, chaos ensues. And the issue is, who did the best job of handling the chaos? This is going to be germane to our closing thoughts because, you know, you guys, you guys have been here long. So the first thing that I'm going to ask is, does the movie make a plausible argument? Does the movie make a plausible argument for that happening? Is it possible that we would have a cyber attack of that level? I just I just needed to hear you. Somebody did somebody cut the heater off? Did did Louis cut the heater off? Now, he may, may, maybe not, but um, we'll be almost, because we have some folk in here look like this down to 30 degrees, like you're freezing. <laughs> and I don't have anybody in here who knows how to actually set the, set the temperature, but uh, do you know what you're doing, G? Yeah, go and see if the thermometer is on 68 heat. Um, I, I, let's keep talking for a little bit, because some of you guys are still with me, because you, you, I need to ask you. I need to, well, you know, I need to, it's Friday and people are talking. I need to ask you. Is it plausible? Is it highly plausible that America could experience this kind of anomaly of a cyber attack? All right, so then the second question that all we have to do begin to do now is ask the question that I've been asking you for the last couple weeks. I've been asking you. Are you ready? All right, so so I've been asking us. Have I not been asking us? I've been asking, are you ready for a blackout? Or are you like the people on the beach? You just got your cameras up, ready to video it and see what's going on. All right. So in the movie, here's the question. The little girl is the most sensitive to the anomalies without a doubt. 
And, and, and the logic is, is that she doesn't have wisdom to be heard. Ask the experts and the experts are fools. All right. But secondly, what we might gather from what was happening is that once the crisis began to occur, it forced these couples together. And they had to go through a series of psychological conundrums. And I'm just going to share with you three or four of them. And then you can chime in. Psychological conundrums. And you need to know because we just went through this. The first psychological conundrum that they went through was denial. That's one. They struggled with what they saw, didn't they? Remember even when the couples came together, did nobody want to say what they saw? So this is when you are programmed from inside not to express yourself. That means they have been programmed. See, I've been telling you, you're only healthy if you're a whistleblower when you actually know the facts and you care about people enough to say this is an anomaly. You are not helpful if you know and don't say anything. So denial puts you into a state of what is called cognitive dissonance. That's number two. This is why it took so long for people to figure out something fishy about the COVID protocols. Oh, the church got to be shut down, but the club don't. I mean, so many, and see, may I say this, if you guys are still with me, so many things that our government does, that's part of the PSYOP, and we already know the data about them using propaganda and psychological warfare on its own citizens. It was outlawed all the way up to the time of Obama, 2012, and then he released it back into use again, okay? I I already talked about this on my Monday show several months ago. And once he did, now you and I are in propaganda overload. And the thing that you and I have to ask ourselves is, do I know how to filter out bad data from good data? Because if you don't know how to filter bad data from good data, you are going to be set up to be unhinged. You're not going to be able to distinguish between myths and propaganda and reality. That's their goal. Am I making some sense? And so when they started actually recognizing that something outside of their control is happening, this is called a crisis. Once you know it's a crisis, the question you have to ask is, are you going to fight? Are you going to run? Are you going to stick your head in the sand and act like it's not there? Those are the psychological choices, right? Am I making sense? And so this is really critical for us to think through because I would ask the question to you and me, when the next crisis comes, given that we've already been through one, did we learn anything? And are we prepared to engage the next crisis differently than we did before as believers because we understand these things are going on in our world? Am I making sense? Gee, did, did, was the heater on? Okay, good. Um, are you guys following what I'm saying now? Okay, so this is, this, is, this is extremely important. The question that we have to ask, is it plausible? Can it happen? If it does, are we prepared? So here comes the word. Who was the most well-adjusted person 
in that crisis? The prepper. The prepper. The guy that was buying all the supplies. The prepper. Yeah, yeah, the cowboy hat. Do you guys remember that? The prepper. Do you guys remember that? Actually, actually the one who was the most prepared, we never saw. And that's what I thought that was interesting was because at the end, the last two scenes I remember was the, was Rose, one of the things she said was, I'm done waiting. She grabbed that bicycle and she rolled off. And I thought what was interesting is what, what she ended up finding. Remember the contractor said he had built the survival, I forgot what he called it, a survival bunker. Yeah, it's a uh, survival bunker. It's a survival bunker. And when she hit that light, they had everything in there they would have possibly needed. needed. And she was the one that found it. I just think a child should leave them because they would have figured they was going to eventually find them. And so that was the inference of the movie that they would find her because she left the trail. Right, she left the trail. And of course, Julia or Amanda was looking for her. But then I like the way Amanda and Rose had to work out their issues because the two that were at extreme odds, one of the last scenes where they were joined hand in hand looking at what was taking place in the city and what they had escaped. And I think it went from that scene to Little Roof over in the place that they would be able to survive survive for some time. And it was her that got up because, as you said earlier, there was adults said something but didn't want to share it. And she saw things and wanted to share it, but nobody would listen. I think they would even be more well-prepared, but no... Let's say nobody took her seriously. Right. Like we tend to do children. I just thought that that was interesting. But I just thought, like you said, I'm done waiting. What did that mean? They were looking for her. I mean, that kind of reminded me about, in a small part, about how they were looking for the Lord Jesus Christ and couldn't find him when, she, when, when, he, when he was younger. And he was, even though she wasn't teaching anything, she went and found the one place that they would be able to survive had all the chaos made it out to where they were. It's an inversion of the Pilgrim's Progress. And what that means is that you can't expect it to take on an explicit biblical affirmation. You have to read that into the narrative in reverse. That's what you have to do. Just like, and so this is the paradoxical nature of the gospel, that children enter into the kingdom faster than adults. For such is the kingdom of heaven. That is the paradoxical nature that you don't get in from wisdom. You don't get in from power. You get in from humility. Are you guys following? And remember what I told you from the beginning of the movie, if you watch it, she was trying to escape the world. She wanted to know how the last scene ended. She put those pieces together because in her dream, she had remembered what the, the sort of euphemism of rescue was about. And she realized that rescue is not about sitting around and wait for someone to come a fourth time to deliver you. She says, all right, it's my turn now to do something. And, and, we, and we, could, we could really go places with that because around the world for centuries, people have, I mean, Jesus says it. He says, you better watch lest the thief breaks in and steal." He said it over and over again. Nations have been clobbered. Okay, so, so, um, and I'll let you talk, Carlos. All you have to do, and I shared this with you, what happened with October 7th? What happened with October 7th? October 6th. Is it 6th? It was 7th. Right, okay. What happened on October 7th 
Immediately, I told you guys, you need to see it for what it is. Because that was put out in the world to be seen. We, world, wars are, are going on all around in our world. Most of them are not meant to be seen because they violate the protocols of war. They are atrocious. Okay? These are international laws. They violate uh, the laws of, of war. War has rules of engagement. And they're supposed to be dignified. Like you're not supposed to bomb innocent people. You're not supposed to destroy innocent people. You just are not supposed to. And that they did it and let us see it is predictive programming. They're training you to be immoral. They're training you to be immoral. And what you're looking at is a microcosm of population decrease. Are you hearing me? And that the world, by and large, is indifferent about seeing it means that for decades upon decades, it has been working, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, when iniquity abounds, the hearts of men will become colder and colder. And this is where you and I are. Do you understand? And, and all we need to do is ask the question, what are those mechanisms that's hardening our hearts so we can live in a world where we, are, we can see evil and don't have any compelling to do something about it. Because I can tell you the powers that be are constantly balloon testing our societies to see how much stuff they can do before we are really up in arms. And I'm fairly sure that when this next thing come down on us, and it will be in 2024, the vast majority of Americans won't do anything. They'll be like the kids on the beach the people on the beach watching the ocean liner come in and they won't do anything. You got to put your mic up if you're going to talk to me because they, they want to hear you. But as you say that, I still believe that there's enough people that are awake. And I think we discussed this before. The problem is we don't have the mic. We don't have the narrative. I mean, there are a lot of people, even though all the mainstream narrative is saying Israel is right for what they're doing, that's not what the public is saying. But the public doesn't have the mic. Most same people know that that's wrong. Now, yeah, I think the question you said is, what are we going to do about it? Just to me, we saw an inkling of it on, on January 6th. I mean, the, even though they, there was no insurrection, because the insurrection would have been all those millions of people that would have just ran up through there. There was only a few people, and we know that was PSYOP, that went into the, that went into the Capitol. And that was by design, because they were trying to create a narrative. But there were still people that are awake enough who, you know, in a lot of just as us in this room right now, who know that that is wrong. You know, so where do we, you know, where do we get the mic? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, you sent out the uh, critique on Philip Anderson. So people are aware. People are waking up. It's just, I think, what method of, you know, force are we going to use? Because... If we, if, we, if we were to just listen to what mainstream media said, I think everybody's pretty much done with that. That's why, as uh, Philip Anderson critiqued Obama, he brought out those points about the things he was saying. I don't know if everyone has saw it or not, about how we don't trust, we, we need to be listened to the mainstream media uh, because they know that we're not trusting them anymore. Like, we're supposed to listen to that narrative because that's what they say is right. And we know that it's not correct, 
And I believe people are just waiting maybe to just maybe show their presence by the next election. I, I mean, I'm not sure, but you say, no, that's not it. So let me, let, me, let me wrap this up because you're kind of going around the okay. tree and I don't want people to get lost. I do understand the reasoning and the logic. But this, what the Obamas facilitated the making of this movie. So, so think about what they did. And then after he facilitated the making of the movie, he gets up and does the pontification that, that James is talking about, which most of you guys should have seen because I sent it out, which would actually work in reverse. So he sends out a movie and then he says, hey, you guys, stop being agitated. Stop buying into conspiracy theories. Stop going to other independent sources. You need to listen to us, the government. You need to listen to your politicians. Do you guys remember that? So so he's actually playing both sides. This is called triangulation in politics. On the one hand, he was compelled to show us what we could expect to occur if things continue down the course that they are. On the other hand, now he's going back and playing the white hat. He first played the black hat. Now he's playing the white hat. And this is called the dialectical process. You must know this. You must know they know what they're doing. He's not talking to Republicans. He's not talking to independents. He's not talking to people that are red pill. He's talking to Democrats. He's talking to the black folks that looked at him as a savior back in 2008. Are you guys hearing me? Because he knows if he can get that constituency to take the blue pill, they might be able to push Biden back over the line when it comes to the um, to the election. So uh, Mr. Obama is an absolute chameleon lying scum uh, for many reasons, right along with Biden, right along with Netanyahu and others is my my own opinion. I don't think they care about people. They are part of the depopulation uh, 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 cronyism. You, you just kind of need to know that. So uh, just an analysis to what James is saying. I am not at all confident that we are, are awakened enough. Between now and 20 uh, now and September to do anything. So I'm, when we get when we get back into our analysis of Pilgrim's Progress, I'm going to talk about the difference between being awakened and illuminated. OK, so a person can be awakened. Because that's what Pilgrim tried to do with presumptuous and slothful and the other cat. And they would say, man, leave me alone. Y'all read that. Leave me alone. I'm cool. Do you guys remember that? Leave me alone. I'm cool. That's where a lot of people are. You can wake them up for a minute, but they're constantly drip, drip, being fed the blue pill ether. They're going to sleep. The other element is that the, uh, con- the, the powers that be don't care if you know. This is something I learned last year. They don't care that we know. And they don't care that we all know together. I told you this on my Monday program about three weeks ago. They only care that you don't care. See, if you know is one thing. If you care, that's another. Because once you care, you're going to be moving levers, employing measures to change conditions. We could take the mic if we wanted to. That's not even a mic thing. There's plenty enough alternative platforms for us all to be absolutely crystal clear in our positions. And I give them yeoman's props for being whistleblowers in the canary because these are the actual people that were on the inside. 
So like the presentations I send you guys, I'm not sending you some Tom, Dick and Harry. I'm sending you presentations that people who are on the inside of the IDF, on the inside of the government stepping out saying, my conscience is bothering me. Like we're going to see in the Pilgrim's Progress when we deal with uh, Interpreter's House. Conscious matters because once your conscious is seared, you can see it and you have no compelling to do anything about it. And the people of God have to know the goal is to make sure that we don't gradually let our hearts get hardened. Because in my assessment of the church in America, we're almost dead. That's my assessment. Okay, and I love to be wrong, but I don't hear anything from the church across America. The vast majority of the wealthy church is on the side of the legacy media outlets perpetrating the lie. Um, my sister, I, I want to hear from you. Got the mic. You guys running dead mics. We're going to be out of here in five minutes anyway. Yeah, when I was, um, when I watched the movie, the, the person that I thought that would probably be more of the pilgrim was the prepper, Kevin Bacon. Because immediately it. when I saw him, I was like, I identified with him right away. Yep. Um, and I think it just brought up for me that you know, us as the people of God, that we have to prepare, right, spiritually more so than um, than how the prepper was. You know, he had everything ready. But I feel like that's where my husband and I and our little family are at. It's like we're really, like, trying to set up the homestead, planning for all of that, you know, trying to get physically fit, you know, um, spiritually fit, financially fit, so that we're ready for whatever may come. But I also recognize that it could also become kind of like um, us trying to depend on our own strength, as you said, you know. Um, no. And, well, that, see, so, yeah, what's, so what's, go, what's going on there will become an exercise in what is called ambivalence. So say you're at the point and I'll come back to that and then I'll close this out. <clears throat> Well, um, I guess I want to hear what you want to okay, say good. before I want to before Excellent. I continue. But I appreciate appreciate that. I'll, but well, I think I've had to really die, remind myself that you know we are not given a spirit of fear, but of power and sound. You know, because sometimes I get so stuck on preparing because I'm I'm seeing all these things that are culminating, coming together, and. I guess I want to hear some good counsel from you. That's great. On so 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 I have I have in my four sheets of information here on this topic tonight. On the fourth sheet, I have. So what should we be doing? Because in uh, the now, how shall I live? Is always the question after you're told what's going on. Now then, how shall I live? Now that I'm a Christian. Now then, how shall I live? is the expected responsibility of the child of God who lives in a world where God is in control, where evil runs rampant, and God will tell us when and how and what to do. So that, that, that is germane to rationale. I'm going to make sure I talk about that before we close. And I'm not going to be long, but I am here to let you know that what's going on in our society, this is why I am utterly worried about the blue pill permeating the whole of the American church by absolute design and that they are mute 
and unable to speak prophetically and speak as a shepherd to their communities about the things that are going on that we are presently talking about. Mute. You should be hearing these things on the radio. Uh, If you know anything about church history, if you know anything about church history, what you must know is that the church has had to travel from one place to another for thousands of years to survive. Like, like, like if you don't know that, then again, it makes sense that you don't know what to do because like I raised the question, is it plausible? Is it highly, of course we know it's possible. Is it plausible that you and I will be dealing with some crisis that might be a cyber attack that might cut the lights off? Is it plausible that we could be dealing with, uh, um, uh, discomfort for seven days or 10 days or two weeks? Of course it's plausible. Is it plausible that that could happen as a consequence of natural catastrophe, an earthquake, earthquake, or some other kind of uh, natural anomaly? Of course it could. And if it does, and if it did, are we prepared? No. Now, so again, what I like about the prepper, I got one minute. What I like about the prepper is the prepper actually believed the report. He actually believed the report. Nothing dumb about him. Nothing dumb about him. When they all ran up to his house trying to get some help, he said, did you get past the page, the front page? How many of you guys remember that? Did you get past the front page? Did you, were you superficial in just reading all of the tabloids or did you go deep into all of the other analysis that let you know how the stock market was going, that let you know that there was a conflict between China, Korea, and America? You didn't read that data? You should have been reading. All that stuff was there. He says, I've read it and guess what? I'm, I'm taking care of my family. Now we're back to the preservation of the family, are we not? He took care of him and his daughter. He had resources. He wasn't saying that he was operating out of the spirit of fear. He was operating out of the spirit of preparation. He was doing what any responsible, rational man would do for his family. A man is a provider and a protector. What I'm saying is a lot of people are in the hybrid position of being awakened but not illuminated. So Pilgrim is going all the way because he's illuminated. People are falling by the wayside because they're just awakened. Am I making some sense? Yeah. Right. So. Um, Carlos, I'll close with you. We'll, we'll come back on this. Look, look, I, I really think we're going to have some deep and profound and some necessary conversations in 2024 because we're headed towards an election that is guaranteed to create all kinds of fireworks in terms of um, psyops and propaganda and foolishness. So one of the things that I think you want to comp- kind of clear cut and compartmentalize um, the individual's but at different points at different times, they're showing different virtues, right? That we could... Um, Agree. And so I think at the end of the movie, one of the things that I was sensitive to was that... Gee, do you know how to cut the heat off, period, all the way to back down the four channels down there? Because now you know you should be knowing. 
All the way back in the back room, you'll go all the way to the wall and you'll see, G, G, look at me. It's in the control room. You'll see, go straight to the wall where you bump into the wall and then you bend down like you're a linebacker. And you're going to see four switches that you have to push. I think they're going out. You'll see them. You kind of think that the girl is well off because she finds... No, no, no. Straight back to the wall. Straight back to the wall. You'll see a panel there. Because she finds this place, and she 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 uses you know the analogy and kind of has that kind of lingo that draws the believer in about providence. But when she was using the quote about providence, her idea of helping herself was she was trying to catch a signal because she was really profoundly wanting to watch friends, right? Mm-hmm. And so, how did she find this house? She's probably running around with her phone until she found. Some sort of signal. I mean, how else did, I, mean, I imagine this is how she found that house. No. No. You didn't see the movie? No, I did. But when she, when she was looking, you, do you remember the cell phones, were, their, they were falling out, and sometimes the news stories were coming in temporarily, and she really wanted to watch the movie Friends. Do you remember how she got to the shed and her big brother pointed her to the house? Yeah. So that's somebody, another conversation. So, yeah. So, Go so, so the motivation is what, what I'm looking at, is sometimes we can do things and... Just because our actions appear well or virtuous, the motive behind them are also, uh, again, something to be looked at. And so, um, That's if you don't invert the movie. Remember what I said? Right. If you're looking at it, trying to just find out whether or not everybody's Christian, you're going to miss Right, it. no, that's, yeah, so, and so. Oh, by the way, if, if bombs are dropping and the little girl is unsaved and she can find her way to the bunker, I'm following her. <laughs> no, right, so. But, you know, but at the same time, when she, when she gets there, she's, you know, she's indulging in the food and she's in. Can, in, I, can I tell you why? Yeah. Because it's a metaphor of arriving to glory. You're the only one. Nobody's listening to you. She's in the safe haven. The safe haven is in Christ. The Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run therein and are safe. And she leaves the door open if anybody else wants to come, but she ain't waiting on them. This girl is going to grub down. She's going to enjoy life, and she's getting ready to see the end of the movie. And, and so... That's my redemptive... No, of course, you have to have a redemptive life on, on top of these, but I, I just, like see, I said... See, because, you know, she labored, didn't she? Mm-hmm. She overcame. She, she saw the epiphany. The epiphany told her in her bed, She's laying in the bed, quasi-sleep. She says, look, I cannot lay here any longer. It's time to do something. And this goes back to um, my wanting to make sure that we understand that, and I think America's trapped by this. I really do. Let's make this a, a, a round two because I'm five minutes over time and I just want to stop. But I think that, see, and I've been watching Christians for 40 plus years. I've been watching Christians for 40 plus years. And I'm listening to them even more acutely over the last two or three or four years. And Christians are not ready for any calamity. And calamities are guaranteed to happen in our world. Those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Those are natural things. Any of my brothers and sisters coming from third world countries will tell me that, right? Those things happen. We cannot. But see, in America, we're acting like it won't happen. And it's the same thing we're thinking about Judgment Day. They don't believe Judgment Day is coming. But but Pilgrim believed it. This is not an admonition on you. I'm just, I'm telling us that I feel like as I'm learning about the way God is granting us all kind of helicopter.